communication of the AC, of the ANC's uh, um, uh, religious uh, affairs uh, in that department. And also she served as a head of communications uh, for the ANC in the Uganda office. Uh, in 1991, when she returned to the country, she became the head of communication in the ANC Women's League. And also in, during the elections of the 1994, she was uh, selected as one of the, she made a team of the spokesperson for South Africa's first uh, democracy democratic elections. And beyond the 1994 elections, uh, Minister Zulu was a member of the Gauteng Legislature, where she was appointed later as a deputy speaker of the Gauteng Legislature, that was in 1995. And then four years later, she was appointed a special advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And in 2001, she was appointed the chief director for the Western and Central Africa. In 2003, she left government and worked for Votacom, uh, where she uh, served as the executive head of government and institutional relations. And in 2004, uh, she became the South Africa's ambassador in Brazil. Uh, she was also elected as the ANC uh, within the NEC Digital Executive Committee, first in 2007 and later in 2009. And she was then elected to parliament as a member of, of of parliament representing the African National Congress. After 2009, Mrs. Uh, uh, Zulu was appointed as a special advisor to the president of South Africa on international relations. And in 2004, during the fifth administration, Minister Zulu was then appointed as a minister for small business and development. And in 2019, when we ushered in the sixth administration, she has been appointed where she continues to serve as a minister for social uh, development. She had shown keen interest in, on many issues uh, relating to the promotion and protection of rights of the vulnerable groups, which include women, uh, young girls, children, youth, people with disability, amongst others. And we have seen she is also highly passionate about women empowerment and gender equality. And recently she had seen as well how she becomes the champion of the poor and unemployed, especially the youth, especially since the implementation of the 250 grant, as well as what is becoming an interesting discussion of the basic income grant. And I think probably Chaperson is the only input that I'll make that will not be followed by, by questions, but it is indeed an honor and a privilege that I present uh, uh, our minister, Minister Lindy Wesley. Thank you. And I'm sure we are all looking forward to receive uh, a speech. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, through you, Program Director, uh, 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 if I may uh, go ahead, do I have your permission? Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson, uh, a uh, Program Director. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Tabani, for that gracious introduction. I was thinking you, you, you're not gonna end. It's becoming a speech itself, but I guess that's the protocol. One has to be to tolerant um, of that. Um, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dean of the Faculty of Humanities of the University of the Free State, Professor Heidi Hudson, Vice Dean of the Faculty of Humanities of the University of the Free State, Prof. Chita Twala, Director of the Zola Square African uh, Social Policy Innovation, Professor Ndwangwa Noyo, um, uh, Academic Head of the Department of Social Work of the University of the Free State, Otampumelelo Nube. Without any prejudice, colloquium contributors from our institutions of higher education, 
representing the University of Vets, the University of the Free State, the University of Venda and, and UNISA, among others. I'm actually excited that um, we're not just talking about UF, UFS and UCT, but we've got all the other um, uh, very important universities who need to be represented here because many of them are within uh, our communities. Representatives of local, international and multilateral partners, faculty members and students of institutions of higher education in attendance locally and all over the world. But most importantly, to the young people who are attending here, um, I get very excited when I, I have to address the young people because I have to keep on reminding them that uh, many of us are here today. We had a journey to travel. I was a student uh, more than 30 years ago at the university uh, in Moscow. And I can tell you that at the time that I was a student, I was studying in order to pass my exams. Uh, I wish somebody could have also told me that don't only study to pass your exams, study for the future so that you, uh, you can absorb what you're getting now in preparation of the future. But of course, one never um, uh, realized at that time that so many years down the line, more than 30 years down the line, one would be in the position that one is in today. So it's an encouragement uh, for me, and I'm saying to the young people, use your studies and use your, the opportunities that you have right now, which many of us did not have, and contribute towards the well-being and contribute towards building a, a new South Africa and contribute towards building a better uh, South Africa, which will be a better for the African continent, but also will be better um, for the world overall. It is you, the young people, who have to take up this and make sure that you can see your path because your conditions, while very difficult as they may be, but they way, way better than our conditions when we were growing up um, and, and, and rising up in 1976. And, and the impact of that is still being felt today, both from a positive point of view, from the fact that South Africa is free, but also the impact of the reason why we are here today, dealing with the issues of protest and what people need to do uh, during protest. So to the young people of South Africa who are here today, you are my targets and let's work uh, together. And then fellow South Africans and uh, media representatives and ladies and gentlemen, comrades who are here today. It is my heartfelt gratitude that today I'm addressing this colloquium that is being co-hosted by the Department of Social Work of the University of the Free State and the Zola Square African Social Policy Innovation of the University of Cape Town. And it actually gives me great pleasure when I talk about uh, Minister, the late Minister Zola Square because a lot of the work that we are doing today was pioneered by him. And I'm hoping that um, his uh, co contribution will always be appreciated and always be understood and not be lost as many of our heroes and heroines life and history is getting lost. It's our task to make sure that it doesn't get lost. When I was considering the request to render this keynote address, I was profoundly influenced by the ethos of the social sciences that are torchbearers uh, that ought to illuminate the myths and dogmas of brazen retrogression and darkness out of the deepest cracks 
and crevices that have been borrowed, borrowed into our society. And in particular, I'm inspired by the fact that social development discipline among the social sciences cares about every South African's well-being and aspirations at all times. Indeed, and indeed, and virtually, we are inclined to live and act together towards collectively beneficial adaptation and resilience uh, strategies. And it is our quest to shape, prosper, and grow in an environment that we find ourselves in. We are deeply em uh, empathetic people. In our communities, the simple greeting on how are you is a genuine inquiry about each and every dimension of a person's well being, from the physical to the material to the psychosomatic, emotional to the spiritual, to whether you belong to intellectual, to the environmental, to the vocational, vocational and, and whether the economic dimension of one's life, life are fulfilled. When knowing how each person is in these different dimensions, then we know what the state of the people is. And talk about the greetings that we do. Sometimes I find myself just greeting people and realizing I'm not getting any response. And I'm realizing that it's something that we are losing. I pray that we don't lose that. The state of the people is the measure of these and other dimensions of the felt needs and conditions of the people in their living context. And therefore, in view of the sedimented layers of epistemic colonialization and apartheid that we find in our constitutions of higher education and society in, today I invite the humanities and social science disciplines in South Africa throughout our continent and in the diaspora to redefine and consolidate their role relative to the people at the center of everything that we have to do. It always has to be the people. It is particularly now in the post-liberation and post-apartheid context that the humanities and social sciences need to lead the process of decisively decolonizing the mind and collective psyche of the people and to formulate society's narrative away from the measures of life and living that were imposed upon us. If only the minority among 60 million people are benefiting from these, then clearly these must be reconstituted. This conference is taking place during the year when South Africa is commemorating 150 years of the courageous life and pioneering spirit of an intellectual, a visionary social worker, a diplomat, a freedom fighter, Umamushalot Makaege in Bogodo, that has influenced many of our people, both at political level, at academic level, but as well as society in general. It is her who, in 1913, led the first anti-protest to Bloemfontein, anti-past protest to Bloemfontein, speaking of first among social engineers and the construction of beneficial so social realities. The 1913 protest that Meshalot Makage led is among the earliest symbols of women's rightful place in society in the forefront. Let me put it differently. The women of the generation that had a deep appreciation of the fact that the Dompas imposed adverse economic 
and social limitations upon all, all of us. And she is among actual examples that we can learn from in doing the damage that we are witnessing today. Representing the interests of a few, the Dompas restricted every woman from freely participating in the trade across the breadth of her birth and land of her birth. For this reason, the 1913 protests have been engraved unto our memories as being among the first attempts to reconfigure this into an inclusive and transformed economy and society. Not only, and I quote, the protest culture and wanton violence, unquote, as the colloquium has framed them, the outcomes of the inten intentional social construction in the same way that slavery, inequalities, racism, poverty, patriarchy, gender-based violence, unemployment, um, displeasing, insatiable greed and hatred, stigmas and stereotypes are, but oftentimes the use of violent protests is a pretext from criminal intents against ordinary people. A range of casual factors have been proposed to explain the recent snowballing of incidents of violence and looting in the different communities in Wazuli Natal and Gauteng uh, provinces. Among those that have been proposed are domestic politics, the imprisonment of former president Jacob Zuma, taxi industry fuel violence, the legacy of the so-called third force, the economic exclusion of the majority of our population, including rising poverty and unemployment levels, the low intensity tensions and anger that underlie our society, insufficient community support and service delivery, and the psychosocial pressures that accompany the advent of coronavirus of 2019, otherwise known as COVID-19. And it is our belief, for instance, as a Department of Social Development, that we need to look deeper into the impact and effects of COVID-19 and what it has done to the psyche of our people and what it has done to um, have a, a, a negative impact to our people and therefore the need for us to ensure that there is greater psychosocial support to our people. Many a times the psychosocial support that is needed by our people is taken for granted that you know what, as black people, we don't need that. Times have changed. Times are impacting on us exactly the same way as it impacts on other people. And therefore it's important for us to get yourselves and our department and the Department of Arts and Sports, Arts and Culture, as well as education and others to unite and see what is it that we can do to assist um, our people from a psychosocial support. Among these, we believe that social science scientists are best equipped to distinguish which ones are causes and which ones are effects and which ones are just simply decoys. I challenge you to assemble the explanatory powers of theories of change and early warning frameworks towards discouraging and deterring prospective incidences of violence in our, in our communities. Conversely, I invite you to, figure, to be figurative midwives to new social value system and behavioral norms and innovators of active citizenship. A few of government's initiative in this regard include the moral regeneration framework 
that is being implemented through the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, as well as the social behavioral change process that the Department of Social Development is working on together with the Department um, of Health. And I am hoping that we will be able to bring the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture into this um, IMC, which is an interministerial that is looking into the behavioral change. And I do want to say to you, this was made possible because government had to look at how do we influence the behavior of our people in order for them firstly and first and foremost to appreciate the impact of COVID-19, to understand what it is and what it is that we need to fight, we need to use to fight it. In simple terms, it was social distancing, it was wearing the mask, it was sanitization and, and washing of hands. We therefore decided if we have been able to influence our people to that level, that it is becoming a norm and is becoming normal, why can't we use the same way of influencing our people against all other social ills? If we're able to mobilize them uh, with regard to fighting COVID-19, it's clearly that that experience will help us moving forward towards a behavioral change. The knowledge outputs that will be generated from your sustained engagements with various communities should immediately be usable in program design, as well as informing policy priorities across all government. Most important in this work is the improvement of the accessibility, quality, and continuity of public services wherever South Africans are. With the re-appreciation of South Africa's social from our unapologetically African epistemic vantage point, this colloquium promises to partner with similar progressive initiatives within academia and, and elsewhere. When the necessary condition, condition in place, I trust that a socially invaluable people, public, private, civic, academic, multilateral partnership will arise from your ongoing deliberations. I trust that the colloquium will result in engaging processes beyond today's uh, presentation. And it is, I'm hopeful as the previous speakers have also indicated that we will maintain a clear vision towards influencing behavioral change. And this in many instances starts with understanding the reason why there's got to be that behavioral change. And in conclusion, I wish you fruitful deliberations and I'm looking forward to implementable outcomes that will meaningfully move our society towards a better South Africa, towards a better world, and towards, in particular, a better African continent. And I heard earlier on someone talking about finding African solutions to African problems. I'm hoping that this colloquium will also ensure that we look for those African solutions for African problems. I thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Minister, for that um, for that uh, opening speech. Um, and in it, you've highlighted quite a number of um, challenges, uh, and of course, also calling uh, on for for us uh, social scientists to come forward um, with practical uh, solutions in partnering with um, with the department and the government in ensuring that the identifiable. Um, 
social ills are dealt with and already you've already started indicating some of the solutions some of the solutions to, towards them but of course here is the colloquium where social scientists are and they're engaging and they are trying to come up tease out these uh, social problems and coming up with what could be possible solutions and of course uh, you're also indicating that uh, a sustained way of engaging will be important in ensuring that we also have a sustained way of responding to solutions uh the honorable minister Siabongakulo. Uh, we trust that everybody had the call as you're putting it forward. But engage with you as well. Thank you. Then uh, in our program next, we've got Professor Ndangonoyo who's coming, who's also, as we we indicated, is a co-host as well from the Zola Square uh, Center. Uh, now his presentation is on building communities through basic needs and self-reliance, uh, shifting South Africa's protest culture. Prof, I hand over to you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Program Director. Uh, may I also just quickly uh, provide salutations to Honorable Minister, Honorable Lindy Wenzulu, uh, Vice Dean of the Faculty of Humanities, uh, University of the Free State, uh, DDG uh, Um, all protocols observed. Um, good morning, Sanibonan, Dumelang, and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this colloquium. I am extremely excited uh, to be part of this agenda setting endeavor to begin to provide the building blocks to the deepening of the democratic dispensation that has been unfolding since 1994, but most importantly, to begin to bring to bear the tools of critical analysis and intellectual depth to the reshaping of the people's mindsets, reshaping of the community conditions and deepening the sense of social cohesion as well as the sense of Ubuntu would do in this post. 1994 dispensation. So my intervention in terms of a presentation, ladies and gentlemen, it, it, it's, it's, it's not only just an academic exercise, but it's something that begins to engage with the practical realities on what needs to be done. How do we move forward from where we were two weeks, three weeks ago? How do we begin to shape the contours of a new society, so to speak, and deepen this democracy. Uh, program director, I have a, a presentation. Uh, you know, as academics, we still have to go back to the uh, PowerPoints, et cetera. So I'd like to, to share the presentation and, and, and then we can engage with uh, our colleagues so that we know where we're coming from and where we are actually going in terms of this presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, as I pointed out, the key issue here in terms of why we came together as academics is to move from the premise of business unusual, saying that we can also provide solutions to the many challenges facing South Africa, facing our communities. 
And so, yes, the backdrop is the, are the violent protests and the looting that took place um, uh, last month. But we have to also to bear in mind that these protests have been with us for quite some time in the post-1994 dispensation and also becoming almost like a perennial activity where young people also find themselves participating in very, uh, how would I put it, in a very uh, um, engaged way in you know, um, activities that are not productive. And, and we find that somehow communities have become quite adept to resorting to violence quite easily uh, as a form of uh, airing their grievances. And, and, and I think one of the things that we began to discuss was that we need to veer away from this easy adaptation of violence as a conflict resolution modality, but to begin to say what can be done by communities, by our people to engage in conflict resolution and providing solutions to their many challenges that they are facing. And one of the things that I would like to put on the table immediately is the problem statement regarding this issue, that most violent acts and development challenges are at the community level. We find that the challenges that are besieging post-1994 South Africa are at the community level. And, 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 and ladies and gentlemen, we find that the government has done quite well at the household and family level through the social assistance program. This program has done very well and government can be um, you know, given the kudos, so to speak, for doing tremendous good work at that level. But we find that the community development pillar is a bit shaky. It has been shaky for quite a while. And I propose that when we begin to move from the premise of community development and, and, and strengthen this pillar of national development, we will begin to move and deepen participatory democracy and enhance self-reliance. That's the first premise. The second premise, ladies and gentlemen, will be the creation of a new citizen. We're not saying that there'll be a new South African citizen, but moving from the premise of the National Development Plan that envisages an active citizen, we would see that this pillar of community development does provide us with the basis to begin to provide the building blocks of mindset changing and attitudinal change uh, by creating this new citizen that was an active citizen. So when we're talking about participatory democracy and enhancing self-reliance, we're saying that citizens cannot be or cannot have agency or be active participants in their development if they're not provided the tools to be such actors. Hmm? Citizens must be given the tools to be active citizens. They should be given these tools by government and civil society actors that are driving 
a holistic community development uh, process that builds from and further enhances self-reliance. And, and I'm stressing on the issue of self-reliance because when we talk about self-reliance, self we're not um, merely uh, moving from an abstraction, but we're saying that the social and economic ability of an individual or communities or households to meet their essential needs, um, or, uh, including protection, food, water, shelter, etc., will be in a sustainable manner. Sustainable and dignified. So there'll be dignity and there'll be sustainability. The intervention, when we talk about community development intervention, will be self-propelling, right? And that's why we mean sustainable manner. It's self-propelling so the communities now take charge of their, of their destinies and, and, and they move in a dignified manner where we will not only, as communities or communities will not only be waiting for the powers that be to provide them with the resources, but they will be also part of the solution. So self-reliance as a program approach refers to the developing and strengthening of livelihoods of persons of concern. And this, we're talking about um, uh, communities and, 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 and having long-term reliance on humanitarian and, and, and external uh, assistance. So uh, as the initial development plan talks about creating this new citizen, and then as I've pointed out that this cannot automatically transpire. We will need to get into the space now of molding, shaping this new citizen. The abstract, the visioning in the national development plan has been very clear that yes, there must be active citizenry, but how do you do that? And so through the community development approach, we would say then that you start shaping, reshaping people's mindsets, you know, because mindsets are made up of our deep beliefs, you know, our attitudes and values. They frame our thinking and therefore determine our behavior, life experiences, and the journey of life itself. They influence how people lead their lives, how they vote, what personal educational and professional opportunities they pursue and what they make out of crisis, right? So if there's a crisis, how do you respond to it? Do you become innovative or do you resort to violence? How you respond to challenges, right? How you respond to opportunities? These are all mindsets. You, even national policies and, and development goals spring off national and global mindsets. So mindsets are very critical in the bringing to the fore the new citizen that we envisage through this community development process. And how can we do this? We do this through awareness, fostering self-reflection and self-responsibility. And I've highlighted on those issues. Already we are finding that the Department of Social Development with its sister departments is already working in communities. And therefore, we're not talking about reinventing the wheel, but engaging in those processes and strengthening them and, 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 and 
breathing new oxygen into these processes through social science research that is evidence-based, that is Afrocentric, that is imbued by indigenous knowledge systems. And so we find therefore, ladies and gentlemen, that solutions need to be co-created, right? The, the, the citizens themselves and, and, and development practitioners and, and the government and, and civil society actors have to work in tandem with the citizens. But we find that many of the approaches in development in South Africa and beyond are still focusing on the materialistic, you know? And so we, we need to move beyond just the monetary aspect of development, you know, and economic development, but begin to talk about the uh, qualitative aspect of development. And that's why I wanted to bring to the fore the issue of the basic needs approach. That community development processes that begin to think about reshaping, redesigning the uh, citizens' mindsets, so to speak, uh, should also be underpinned by the basic needs approach. And I think this approach needs to be revisited because when we go back to the 1994, the immediate 1990, post-1994 uh, dispensation, we find that the, the uh, reconstruction and, uh, and development program was very strong with programs such as Masakami coming to the fore and being rolled out across the country. And so the, 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 the reconstruction and development program, I would argue, um, was shaped and colored by the basic needs approach. And, and we need to revisit this, this approach in order to, 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 to bolster the community development um, process. And so we're talking about you know, basic needs, um, um, providing opportunities for the full development of the individual or communities, uh, mobilizing particular resources for communities or particular groups, you know, um, and, and, and making sure that it fills the gap between requirements and actual living levels. A very important uh, development approach that I feel could be revisited and conjoined with the community development approach and strengthening the community development approach. And, and, and so when you're moving from this human needs, uh, from the basic needs approach, you also are stressing on the non-material needs, right? The non-material needs such as self-determination, self-reliance, political freedom and security, participation in the decision-making, national cultural identity, and a sense of purpose in life and work. And I remember yesterday when we had the briefing with Honorable Minister, she, she was talking about these issues, purpose in life, you know, uh, a sense of worth, you know, as a citizen, sense of pride in what you're doing. Uh, and so these are some of the issues that we need to look at in terms of development paradigms that we could revisit to strengthen the community development approach, but also to set this agenda for a better South Africa, for a deepened democracy, for a participatory approach to citizenry's uh, activities. So let me quickly go into the youth factor, ladies and gentlemen. 
So at the heart of the wanton violence and heightened protest culture are the youth of South Africa. And we see them, their images, young people participating in, in the destruction of property, etc. And part of the um, uh, objective of this colloquium was to stress on the issue of wanton violence. Yes, there is violence that comes through protests. But we're finding that in the last 15 years or so, there's this wanton violence that is expressing itself in the country. You know, the burning of, of, of schools, burning of, of, of hospitals, burning of, of public, uh, public transport infrastructure, for example, trains, buses, etc. And so when we go back to the Collins Dictionary or any dictionary, we will find that wanton violence, it, it, it refers to deliberately causing harm, hmm? damage, or waste without having any reason. Now, I remember in one community when we were doing some research, we found that there were people, people were asking, but what has the, what, what has the clinic done? Why should you burn it? So you're finding that even community members are perplexed as to ask, but what are these structures? Why are they being burned? You know? And, uh, and so, uh, we, 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 we needed to get into that space to begin to ask the question, how do we stem this wanton violence that is uh, making our communities um, um, not moving forward um, uh, in the sense that you take 10 steps forward, right? And, and sorry, you take two steps forward and you take 10 steps forward because government cannot continue building the same structures without investing on, you know, in other uh, structures. So it's important for us to begin to ask the question, how can we move away from the wanton violence? So when we, we look at the youth, the statistics in Africa shows that the, the, the youth unemployment is, is concentrated amongst the youth. 59.5% of the total of unemployed persons are the youth. The unemployment rate amongst the youth is high irrespective of education level. Uh, the graduate unemployment rate is 40.3% for those aged 15 to 24 and 15.5% among those aged 25 and 34 years, while the rate amongst adults is aged 35 to 64 years was 5.4% in the first quarter of 2021. But of the 10.2 million persons aged 15 to 24 years, approximately 32.4%, right? Which is approximately, sorry, 32.4%, which is approximately 3.3 million were not in employment, education, or training. This is a worrisome picture, ladies and gentlemen. So if we talk about 3.3 million people, it's more than the, 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 the population of Botswana. It's more than the population of, of Namibia. It's, it's more than the population of Lesotho. And the, the needs, the so-called needs, those young people who are, um, you know, not in, in, in employment, you know, uh, find themselves or in education, etc., cetera, uh, more than the populations of our neighbors in the region. So what are we saying? The, those who are not in education, employment, education and training, um, 
uh, should be seen in conjunction with unemployment rates over 60% and suggest that the youth indeed face extreme difficulties engaging with the labor market in South Africa. So at the heart of this new agenda, the agenda setting that we are engaged in today, ladies and gentlemen, is the whole notion of incorporating the youth in this community development process, the changing of mindsets, the behavioral change that the Honorable Minister was referring to earlier on, and how do we make these young people active participants in the democratization of their country, but more importantly, active participants in the economy in one way or the other? That's a key question. And another question we will, you know, uh, need to illuminate is, is, is where do these youth come from? So obviously they come from communities across Africa, as some political commentators would say, they don't fall from the sky, right? Some come from families, some come from households. We should bear in mind also that they are child-headed households and, and, and some do not have families. Others are on the streets in those communities. So whether they are in families, households or, or in, in streets, but they are coming from somewhere and that can be located in, in, in communities. So let me quickly go into the issues of building a new society through social science interventions. And that's why we need a paradigm shift that it's not just about intellectual intellectualizing and, and, and and, and sitting in our ivory towers and to begin to say, what can we do to bring to bear our intellectual muscle as, as, as uh, the program director, uh, Dr. Nube uh, pointed out, how can we bring our intellectual muscle to, to, to help uh, government and, and other actors to begin to reshape and build this new society that we envisage where there is um, an active citizen. And so, Again, going back to my first premise, the problem statement that I, I afforded in terms of community development pillar being the one that should provide the, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the basis for change. There's a realization of a sustainable and holistic social development process, right? That it has been shaken and it needs to be strengthened. And it needs to be strengthened through the utilization of inter disciplinary social sciences perspectives that are Afrocentric and couched in indigenous knowledge systems. Again, as Minister pointed out earlier on, Honorable Minister and, 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 and uh, other uh, colleagues when I was not still in uh, struggling with my, my, my internet connectivity that let's have African solutions for uh, um, African um, problems or challenges. Let, let, let us have community um, 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 uh, interventions that are reflective of community members' aspirations, you know? So community development, you know, we should be uh, 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 provided the, uh, an impetus to move and change people's uh, abilities and mindsets should also be informed by evidence-based research and seek to change the minds of community members to be active uh, participants in, in their development. So setting the agenda. 
I'm getting into the nuts and bolts and what needs to be done, you know. So we have opportunities. And uh, in, as we go forward with this partnership with the government and, 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 and other actors as academics, we will need to, as I mentioned earlier on, not reinvent the wheel, but make sure that we revisit some of the brilliant ideas that we have uh, that have been put across by government since 1994. Uh, so for example, the subsidized housing, for example, um, which is your so-called RDP houses. How do we make that developmental? How do we make that embolden the active citizenry agenda? And I would argue that it, there must be a paradigm shift in the way the RDP houses or subsidized government houses are built. And how can that be? I would argue that they need to be linked to the pub, ex, expanded public works program. And in such a way that community members build their own houses, for example, after being capacitated by the government and provided startups. This could resemble almost like the upgrading, upgraded sites and service model, where you have the positive aspects of sites and services with schemes that deserves support means recognition of the ability of people to house themselves with a little backing from the government. You see, if we have community members being part of expanded public works program where they get capacitated in bricklaying, plumbing, etc. right? And then the government provides the plots, right? And uh, which they call the sites and service things for water, sanitation, etc. Community members will begin to build their own houses. But at the same time, they'll be getting a stipend. So you can kind of cut out, cut out the middleman, so to speak. So you will not have developers, but you will have communities building their own houses. That's active, uh, active citizenry, isn't it? That's, 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 that's how you begin to empower people. And so this um, um, uh, model of sites, sites and services could be upgraded and customized in this African scenario where you're talking about making the best use of uh, existing resources and, and potential resources at the household level and at the community level. Again, strengthening the community development approach. Um, so the meeting of low-cost housing at the community level, I would argue not only resonates with the basic needs approach, but will enable community members to be skilled and empowered to build their own houses while cutting out, as I mentioned earlier on, the middleman, so-called middleman, but also giving them the sense of pride, but also giving them the self-reliance, but also giving them the self-determination and participatory processes and abilities to enhance and deepen the democratic dispensation of post-1994. So by linking housing schemes to EPWP, community members will decide their destinies, you know, and earn an income, but more importantly, they will be part of also building community infrastructure and amenities. Now, the youth question, I would argue, we could revisit the Masupatsila Youth Pioneer Program. Now, most of the youth who are not in employment, education, or training, I would argue should be earmarked for the Masupatsila Program. All three million of them. Why is the Masupatsila 
program, uh, Youth Pioneer program. Uh, how, why do I find it resonating with this issue of, uh, of, of changing mindsets? Well, it was derived from the Cuban experience by the, the Department of Social Development, where young people were supposed not only to be change agents, right, but would have been capacitated with a particular consciousness raising type of curriculum training. You know, part of the Masopasila curriculum, for example, like uh, uh, curriculum one, which, which introduces you to the icons of the liberation struggle and why they um, went and provided the impetus for liberation, such as Yulili and Ngoi's of Mamalili and Ngoi's of this world, the, the Helen Josephs of this world, etc. Why did those women march to Pretoria? It's part and parcel of the curriculum. So you create a consciously adept young person, conscientized, but also this young person is a change agent in those communities. I would argue that the Masupatsila program, Youth Pioneer program needs to be revisited to deal with these issues of the uh, not in employment, education and training youth to pay to play a particular role in alleviating societal poverty in general, youth uh, poverty, unemployment, etc. Ladies and gentlemen, I will end here and uh, pass over to program director and thank you for your time and for listening to this presentation. I thank you. Prof Noyo, that was a mouthful, a very impatient presentation, emphasizing the importance of relooking at the community development pillar in our nation building. And of course, highlighting that this is where perhaps we might have been lacking in the past. We might have done or been doing well in as far as individuals and families are concerned. But when it comes to that pillar of community development, it seems, as he puts it, we've been shaky on that. And he's, he's putting forward that it is this that we need to, to strengthen. He's talking about creating a new citizen, people who will be active in issues of nation building, not only waiting on the other side for services to be delivered, but for them to be part of service delivery. This is what he's putting forward. It talks of reframing our thinking, changing the mindset. How do we reframe our thinking? How do we change the mindset? And earlier on, the minister uh, spoke about issues of moral regeneration as well. She also spoke about, maybe before the issues of moral regeneration, she spoke about looking at how we've been, with the country has managed to deal with, um, or successfully dealing with um, the, the coronavirus in which we are as we speak, having to mobilize the community to fight the scourge that coronavirus is, issues of sanitization and so forth and so on. If young people are able to do that, they've been mobilized to do that, consciously they are aware what they're supposed to do as far as fighting the coronavirus is concerned, what will then be difficult for us to be in a position to also mobilize 
the society, the communities towards an identified agenda. She spoke about earlier on, she spoke about um, issues of moral regeneration, looking at some of the things that are happening and you question yourself and say, when we talk of nation building, are we conscientized on the aspirations of the country? Who sets those aspirations? What are the aspirations of the country? Are people conscientized on that one, on those ones? And then I saw Jennifer posted a, a comment earlier on saying, in order for us to respond to the calls that Prof. Noy is putting forward, we need to find each other. On what do we need to find each other? First of all, we need to I agree on the, on the aspirations of the country, of the nation, and say, this is what we aspire for. And then we need to walk that journey of saying, rather moving towards those aspirations. And Prof. Noy is actually giving us some tangible solutions of programs, of, the, of things that need to be done. So let me open up this platform now for people to raise questions. If you want to have a question or a comment, please you unmute yourself um, and then you speak. Perhaps it will be important to, to raise your hand so that um, I'll be in a position to see you from this side. Uh, let me see if there are any comments um, or, or, or questions. Jennifer, would you want to um, reiterate what you've just said? I, I see um, uh, Dr. Natani has just raised the hand. Uh, Dr. Natani, can I give you this opportunity, please? Uh, Jennifer, please get ready as well. Thank you, Program Director, and thank you, um, Prof. Noyo, for that uh, thought-provoking um, presentation. I, I want to engage on two things. Um, one is around, um, as you rightfully point out, the violence at community level. But I want to hear what you are proposing on, on rage. You know, the, the ease, the, the violence that we're seeing in, at community level is deeply rooted in rage uh, that, that exists. And this rage, um, for me, I often link it with the, the trauma that has been transferred from one generation to the next. Um, these young people who are violent are raised, some of them in societies where they see violence on daily basis. So um, if you can please talk to what you are proposing on this, this rage that is in communities that exist in communities, how do we channel that rage in alternative ways? And also that rage because for majority of our people in this country, the past is still in the present. Um, we have a new political dispensation, but their day-to-day -day realities still reflect um, hopelessness. It still reflect pain. And, and so how do they channel this pain? On last one, um, if you can maybe also propose the element of ownership, because what happens in communities they see a site being cordoned off, they see a building. And when you ask, people don't often, often don't know if it's a school, if it's um, a clinic. So if you can gauge on ways in which government can instill a sense of ownership on facilities that are built in communities, because we know very well in this country, there was a time when communities would build schools and they would protect those schools and they will make sure that those schools are not vandalized. So what are some of the things that you are proposing with that regard in instilling a sense of ownership. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dr. Nathaniel. Um, Prof, are you there? Are you? Uh, thank you, uh, Program Director. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Natane, for that uh, critical in uh, intervention. Uh, that's a very valid point uh, that, you know, it's not just violence, but there is this pent-up rage that is transmitted uh, that from generation to generation. And that is part of the unfinished business of liberation. The unfinished business of liberation. So there are certain facets of the post-1994 scenario that we begin, we will need to engage um, critically. And, and that's why I was, when I was proposing the, um, the Masupatsila program, um, the issue of um, the basic needs approach and where you find that communities take ownership of charting their own destinies and being part of the drivers, whether it's the building of uh, infrastructure, there's also an element, there's also a psychosocial conscientizing element, right? So you do not just begin um, um, making changes, but you need to begin with individuals in those communities. Find them, and you make sure that you are at the same level. And so the concept of self-determination, but also the, 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 the issue of their innate feelings and, and their aspirations. One of the things that community members continuously argue is that they feel disempowered. So if you channel that rage in a particular way, people are part of the solution. And that's why I'm proposing the community development approach as the key solution, because it allows not only the uh, you know, community members to be participants, to be uh, 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 you know, uh, to, to determine the, the, the agenda, but also to tap into their inner feelings, the psychosocial uh, issues, and, uh, which also Honorable Minister raised. So I would argue that the starting point is bringing the people back to the center stage of the change that we envisage, and the community development approach would allow the same ownership that you, 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 you raised, uh, Doc, but also enable the pent-up anger and rage, as you have read, uh, rightly pointed out, to dissipate in um, not only um, activities of, of, of building and, and, and shaping their own lives, but also articulating their own views and being able to deal with those uh, innate feelings in a democratic and safe space. So that's part of the community development agenda setting. We need to find each other the way we are uh, before we start talking about building a school. So you articulate, you, have, you verbalize. Those activities enable community members to begin to bond, but also to deal with their traumatic um, experiences that have been inherited from um, previous generations. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Prof. Um, in responding uh, to those questions that were raised, she's, she, she also spoke of that generational trauma that um, perhaps uh, comes from even way before um, 1994 uh, coming in, and that's what people are carrying. And could it be that the material conditions on the ground are actually exacerbating that and we are seeing this generational trauma 
at a, a heightened level, which is what is making people to be to, to be filled with so much rage to a point that they don't do not even care what is in front of them, be it clinic or a school or whatever infrastructure. They rather destroy that as a way of flating off the the trauma that they might be um, that they might be feeling at a given point in time. So basically, that, that, that is what um, that, that is one of the questions that was raised. I don't know if uh, Prof. Trauma, you want to, uh, pardon me, uh, Prof. Uh, Prof. No, you will want to come back um, on, on that one. Uh, if not, um, again, uh, you, we can also give somebody else um, a chance. Prof., do you want do you want to come back on that one on the issue of trauma, particularly? I don't know. Very very, very important point, but also uh, the agenda setting that we 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 are we are, we are, we are uh, putting together. It is not one that is tunnel vision or is binary. It should be one where we talk about interdisciplinary uh, perspectives, right? Um, and, and therefore, even with government, and when you look at the community development approach, it's not just located in social development, you know, and, and Honorable Minister rightly pointed out issues of, of uh, you know, sport and, and recreation, etc. But more importantly, um, uh, program director and, 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 and colleagues is the fact that when you uh, deal with issues of moral regeneration, right, uh, issues of absent fathers, for example, these are key issues that feed into these uh, problems of, 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 of pent up rage that could help in you know, reducing some of these challenges. But it's not, uh, there's no silver bullet for these issues. It, it requires a, a multifaceted and uh, interdisciplinary and, and a multi-pronged approach with various stakeholders being on the ground and building processes uh, bottom up. Uh, so I would argue that, yes, indeed, we will need um, to have a multi, uh, you know, interdisciplinary approach, but bringing other processes to bear, such as your moral regeneration, uh, uh, you know, program, um, program, your psychosocial services, all of them um, uh, bearing on communities. And I would argue, for example, the war room. The war room was also a very good concept, and it's a good concept which could be used in this agenda setting, uh, where you have a multiplicity of actors bearing on, on, on communities, bringing to bear on communities, changing the, the, the conditions, but from different angles. So you're not just focusing on one facet, uh, so to speak. Thanks, uh, Program Director. Thank you very much, Prof. Noyo, for, for that uh, response again. And I also note the comments from the colleagues, um, Chance Chakunda, uh, making the comments that indeed uh, uh, we need a holistic approach to this. So it, it's not a, a binary kind of an approach into de in dealing with this, um, the, the problems that we see. For instance, we're looking at this wanton violence and as far as protests are concerned. And I also see that uh, Muloy Daniel has also commented that um, in actual fact, there might be initiatives around our communities um, that perhaps need augment, augmentation, perhaps from, from government, from private sector, and from 
from everywhere else to ensure that they really see the, the light of the day uh, and respond accurately uh, and sufficiently to the needs um, of the people. And of course, Jessica is also the intergenerational trauma uh, plays such a big role uh, in this range and such that if it is left unattended, unfortunately, we'll see the recurrence of this violence every now and then, no matter what the issue is. So these are some of the comments that are coming up. If there's anyone else, again, who wants to um, ask uh, uh, Prof. Noyo a question based on his presentation, please do feel free to do, uh, to do so. But what is of most importance is that he's underscoring the fact that uh, we are bringing intellectual capacity that we, we as social scientists have uh, from the social sciences, it is this that we are bringing to the table to say, using our intellectual capabilities, let us try and be in partner with the government such that um, when, when we respond into the, the problems that are being faced by the people, we respond in such a way that uh, takes into, into consideration these experiences and these capabilities that we have from social science sciences. So with that being said, uh, and seeing that um, there isn't um, any hand that is being raised, we then move on to the next speaker. And in this case, um, we're inviting uh, Dr. Natane. Uh, Pumi, Jennifer has her hand up. Is it? Okay, thank you for assisting. Thank you, Tali. Um, Jennifer, please come uh, say something. Uh, good morning, uh, Program Director, and uh, thank you, Prof, for the powerful presentation. Uh, Men, if we look at the circumstances all around us in our country, and we look at our youth and our young children from birth, what is being mirrored to them uh, is a life of non-existence, of misery, of no going forward. So we may have all these beautiful theories for change, but if, but we cannot ex uh, ignore when they wake up in the morning, what do they see? And what does the impact of what they see around them do to the internal world? Doesn't it make them as if they inhuman, as if they um, don't belong, as if they're part of a scrapyard? So how can we instill within them a sense of purpose, a sense of value, a sense of hope, and actually, um, becoming creative and enjoying just being a human being living in South Africa. So how can we look at this theoretical frameworks and how can we instill hope and uh, get rid of that rage that burns so deeply in them? Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for raising that. Again, making, um, bringing to the fore the issue of the material conditions that are presenting, uh, that our people are faced with on a daily basis, and uh, perhaps indicating that it is that, that that drives people to act in the manner in which they do. Until and uh, unless we, we address those material conditions, unfortunately, we won't even get to move towards the aspirations uh, of the nation, or even begin to talk about the national agenda. The national agenda becomes uh, um, it becomes something, something that will be useless in the long run if, if the material conditions on the ground are not, are not uh, dealt with sufficiently. And it is for this reason that we've got this colloquium to say, let us try and use this intellectual muscle that we have to say, we've got these theories that we have 
And how best then do we ensure that we, we, we come up with practical solutions um, that are evidence-based, as Prof, Professor Noe indicated, that uh, so that we, we, we try and begin to move towards um, ensuring that we address these material conditions that you're talking about. I see quite a number of other comments that are coming up. Uh, if, uh, if anybody has got a, a comment to raise, I've got um, about three minutes before we move on to the next speaker. I'll welcome that. If anybody has got um, a hand, please do say what you, what you have to say now. Uh, sorry, pro Program Director, can I just quickly respond to the last speaker? Please do. Um, and thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, for that intervention. Uh, it's a very critical uh, uh, question. Uh, my, my, my take on this issue is that we need a paradigm shift. And, and, and what comes to my mind, I mean, people can say anything about Cuba, but I just love the Cuban model. What the Cubans do, for example, and these are, this is an island that has got less resources than South Africa. When a, uh, a Cuban uh, um, woman is pregnant, that is when the state st starts tracing that new citizen prenatal, right? They start monitoring the child all the way from conception to ECD level. So that lady will not just have doctors engaging with her. She will have a social worker. She will have a psychotherapist. She will have a, um, uh, you know, a psychologist uh, around her. That's what they call the holistic approach to an individual, a citizen that you have different role players already providing services to that Cuban uh, woman that is still pregnant, who has not even given birth. So it's a paradigm shift. We need to, 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 to think outside the box. If countries that have less resources than South Africa have scored exceptionally well in the human development um, and, you know, outcomes, such as Cuba, it is how we approach these issues. So all these uh, millions of unemployed, I mean, thousands of unemployed social workers, the ones that we can train as Matsupatsilas, they can actually be the ones to be monitoring communities and individuals in those communities and, and, and making the change at the grassroots level. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, um, Prof. Noe, again, for that um, response. And um, I see, yes, uh, Daniel came back again with a comment on the chat room, on the chat box. Um, and of course, um, Itlale highlighting the importance of the issue that was raised by uh, Jennifer. And of course, Prof. Noe coming back to to indicate uh, some of the models. And we're talking of the tried and tested models that can be brought to the fore and look at how they can be uh, put into use in our context. Okay, thank you very much colleagues for that engagement. Um, and we trust that as we, we, we progress, we've noted some of the practical solutions that, need to, that we need to embark on. And these will be collected at the end of the presentations um, so that we, we, we come up with a, uh, with a write up of what could uh, be of assistance uh, in this regard. And then we move on. And yes, uh, Jennifer, you're right. Again, the minister also highlighted that her main interests, her main concern are the young people. Because if we miss it at that level, as Prof. Noe is indicating that perhaps we might need to even go uh, deeper and start um, from, from conception. 
moving right up to ECD and taking the child right through their, their childhood uh, stage. So if we miss it at that level, unfortunately, there won't be any miracles later on to build um, active citizen, uh, citizens uh, in the country. So you are right, you are right raising that as well. So thank you very much, colleagues, for that engagement. Um, it was really uh, interesting. So now, with that said, we now need, need to move on to Dr. Mutalipula Natani Talela from the University of Vest. Um, and as I indicated earlier on, her presentation is on inequality, unemployment, and poverty in South Africa. Um, Dr. Can I please hand over to you, Dr. Talem? Um, thank you, Program Director. Uh, revolutionary greetings to everyone on this platform. Uh, can you all confirm that you can hear me? If Am I, I can audible? Yes, if I can hear you, Dr. Edmunds, everybody can hear you. Okay. I trust. Thank you, Pro Program Director. Um, revolutionary greetings to you all colleagues. I want to take this opportunity to recognize the Minister of Social Development and his office, her office, I mean, uh, and also to acknowledge uh, the organizers of this event and thanking you very much for inviting me. I think it is proper in this month of August to acknowledge um, the women on this platform, but also the general role that women um, have played in the revolution, in our struggle in this country, in development and everything. So I would like to honor um, the role of Mam Charlotte Mateke, SM Bogoto. I want to honor the role of Mam Lillian Goi. I want to honor the role of Mam Sophie De Brain, the role of Mam Helen Joseph, the role of Mam Rahima Musa the role of Mamnom Zamo Mandela to say we, we salute you in, in a society that has dismembered you. We remember you and we call you by your names and we stand on your shoulders. Um, so thank you. Um, my pr uh, presentation today is basically focusing on poverty, inequality and unemployment. And I've labeled that to say is a threat to democracy because it's simply what one of the top world economists, um, Thomas Piketty uh, pointed it out to be. Um, he came to South Africa. He was one of the speaker in the, um, the annual Nelson Mandela lecture. And he was applauding South Africa about a beautiful democracy that we have, um, but really warned about uh, warned us about inequality, poverty, and unemployment, and pointed out that these are indeed a threat to democracy. So in my introduction, I want to talk about these three um, issues uh, and, and, and really unpacking poverty and, and say they have poverty, unemployment and inequality has really been labeled as the triple threat. And I think it is exactly that, as I pointed out earlier, it is a triple threat and it's a threat to our democracy. And often when we talk about poverty in South Africa, I want to really contextualize it and say, poverty is not just a lack of income. Uh, it's very important to talk about 
multi-dimensional um, element of poverty, that the poor people in this country struggle with access to healthcare, struggle with access to housing, struggle with the level of education or the form of education that they can afford for their children. So it's very useful to have that lens when you look about poverty or talk about poverty in South Africa. And, and, and also locating poverty at a structural level and say poverty in South Africa is a structural issue because there's a tendency in this country to blame the poor or even in our intervention when we're thinking about different interventions to often um, think about the poor as the problem and yet this is a structural issue. We also know that inequality is definitely a threat to democracy, but very importantly so to point out that unemployment is a form of a structural violence because it really robs individuals of the ability and the dignity to provide for themselves. And I know that often when we talk about um, unemployment or employment, there's that narrative around the fact that individuals are happy to be recipient of grants, social grants. Uh, but I want to point out and register at this platform and say, there is a certain dignity that all South Africans and individuals enjoy, and that is the ability to be employed, to provide themselves, to have a buying power, to provide for their families. Um, and in, in, in continuing to unpack poverty, it's also very important um, to say that while in South Africa, um, the political dispensation has really brought freedom and that is political freedom. If you look carefully and if you move around townships in this country, if you move around uh, uh, rural areas, you will notice that really the position particularly of those previously disadvantaged population has in fact deteriorated. And I say this and I say it's particularly so in rural areas and in parent urban townships. So when you look um, at the structure, the social engineering of townships, of rural areas and the lack of rural development in this country, the fact that people still have to cluster to urban areas to find opportunity, you will look at the lives of those individuals and see that conditions have deteriorated. And I'll unpack, unpack later why I say that. And um, we also know that this poverty, the stubborn poverty that is so deeply entrenched in our society is of course inherited legacy of colonization and apartheid. So even in cases where we talk about the 27 or the 20 something years of democracy. When you look not only at apartheid, but when you look at colonization and you locate it back to 1652 and you bring it back to um, 1913 land act, you would realize that those legacies have led this current situation of poverty that we are experiencing in this country. And I think the, the view of looking at the intergenerational transmission of poverty helps us to better understand the uniqueness of poverty in this country. That in the same way that rich people transfer wealth to next generations, to future generations, poverty in the same manner 
is transferred from one generation to the next. So if you are really thinking of ways of disrupting this poverty or ending this poverty, you have to have that lens that this is something that is transmitted from one generation to the next. When you look at uh, the population of our people in this country who are mine workers, can they afford decent quality education for their children? Or will their children join them and work in the mines as well? Um, so that's how poverty is transmitted from one generation to the next. And I think when you have that lens, it helps you to even think about ways of intervening. And also we need to look at poverty and that the deep levels of poverty are really threatening uh, survival of family members and particularly children. And I think this is where um, our country, uh, our government has really tried very hard to intervene uh, through school feeding programs, through child support grant, but we know that poverty is really felt at house, household level and it does affect children in families. Um, moving on to talk about inequality. So we talk about uh, the fact that South Africa has unacceptable levels of high uh, inequalities. And uh, this has led to a point where uh, South Africa has been described as one of the most unequal countries in the world. And, and, and very interestingly, uh, in, the 90, in the 90s, late 90s, when I was a student at VETS, uh, uh, Dr. Noyo then uh, taught us a course and he introduced us to Brazil and said Brazil at the time was one of the leading and equal society in the world. And now today, uh, after many years, I'm sitting in this place and I'm saying that my country is one of the unequal societies in the world. And I think in our interventions, it's very important to think and ask ourselves, you know, what are some of the things that other countries in the global south did to um, escape that uh, uh, being defined as unequal societies in the world. Um, because we are, uh, we are aware that the, the, the poverty, the extreme poverty that exists in this country uh, uh, happens alongside opulence and wealth. Uh, so how do you, when you look at the, uh, the area of view of Senton and, 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 and Alexandra or uh, Deep Sloot and Dane Fen, you see the juxtapose of inequality in the context of opulence. So how do we escape this inequality? I think we need to think creatively about how other countries like Brazil escape from being labeled one of the most unequal societies in the world. Um, we also know for a fact that countries with high levels of, of, of inequalities have high, higher levels of social tension. So the social tension, this looting, this violence that we are seeing is deeply rooted in inequalities um, because this is not just a fact in South Africa, it's a global fact that the higher the inequalities, the higher are the levels of social tensions. And we know that this inequality that we're grappling with is just so incompatible with the true values um, or the true equality um, that are so enshrined in our constitution, uh, the constitution of the Republic of South Africa and, and even democracy itself. So it, it kind of contradicts, we say equal citizen, equal citizen, and yet in reality, um, inequality uh, uh, robs our citizens to really enjoy 
um, that central tenant of our democracy. And very uniquely so in South Africa, we can state that in this inequality is easily identifiable along racial lines. And that is because of many of our policies that we have had in this country. And so with, in talking about unemployment, I'm also very intentional in not using any statistics because uh, sometimes statistics um, from government and statistics from labor, statistics from trade unions will tell you a different story. But we know that one of the things that we have grappled with since 1994 um, is the fact that a majority of our labor force is consistently unemployed people who are able to have jobs, people who are in their productive years of their lives and they are able to work, that labor force is consistently unemployed. Uh, so I know that Prof. Noyo touched a lot on the needs, um, but we know that people are also underemployed uh, in this country. Uh, people are, under, are underemployed because someone might be available to work for five days a week, but the job that is available is one day or two days a week. And when we talk about unemployment, we don't even need the statistics. You just need to drive in Johannesburg at every street robots, at every um, uh, 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 retail area, there are people standing there with their boards, you know, saying I can paint, I'm looking for a job. And if people who are standing there with their tools, you know, they are looking for, 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 for employment opportunity. And I think that phenomenon exactly disrupt the notion that uh, people are lazy, people don't want employment. If you go to every street corner in this country, particularly in urban areas, you'll find people, and these are people who are skilled. And I think, again, the fact that the labor force that is consistently unemployed in this country, the skilled labor force, it also disrupts the lie of big business because big business tells us in this country that there's a shortage of skills, there's a shortage of skills. In reality, the labor force that is unemployed in this country is a skilled labor force, okay? And so this unemployment that we have really battled with since 1994 also is because of some of the decisions, the neoliberal microeconomic policy that we have adopted as a society, as a country that has led to this current situation. The idea of privatizing even the state-owned um, enterprises. And we know once um, uh, uh, big markets come into this space, the agenda there is, is to make profits and, and they really put the best interest of the employees as the very last thing. So that is another important factor. And so we're not only talking about unemployment, and as I alluded earlier, but we're also talking about underemployment. And, and these are seen as major drivers of inequalities in this country. We also talk about historical disadvantages. Um, uh, as I pointed out earlier, we cannot look at South Africa from the lens of 1994. We have to see how the past is still in the present for majority of the population in this country and how these stubborn historical disadvantages are still affecting people through adult unemployment, limited livelihood opportunities, um, and these leads to household vulnerability. And I think for me, often when we talk about um, active citizenship, 
individuals being taking initiative. I want to point uh, people on this platform to um, our urban areas. If you go to any taxi rank, if you go to any mall, you will find at the street corner, uh, someone standing there, whether they're selling vegetables, whether they wake up at uh, 4 a.m. to go and fry fat cakes and sell at taxi ranks. So the view is that our citizens are not just waiting for grants, they are creating small ways of employment. Um, when you look at any mall, just across the road, you will see uh, as people who are selling items when you look at street corners. So for me, that speaks to the fact that people are not just waiting for jobs. People are waking up every day and doing something to sustain their families. And I think we need to find creative ways of how we can better support women who are selling at street corners, uh, at taxi ranks, um, uh, traders, informal traders in this country, how do we best support them that so that their businesses are sustainable and they are able to help um, their families? Because in all fairness, there is no market at this point in time that is going to employ everyone in this country. So we have to find other ways of uh, creating employment, um, but making sure that that is profitable and that helps people to sustain their families. So in this next slide, I want to bring this presentation and locate it to a very unique context in South Africa. Um, often when we talk about poor, the poor, we link it that uh, poor people are unemployed people. But very important to note that in this country, we have a, way, a very unique situation of the working poor. Uh, and statistics from Stats SA, a research conducted in different institutions points out that we have a problem of the working poor. Many of um, uh, the population of people in this country who are employed can be classified as poor because after they've paid for transport, after they've sent remittance home, those who are migrant laborers, after they've paid rent, you know, these are people who have to buy, cannot even afford food or meat at the end of every month. It's people who are employed, but they cannot afford decent health care for themselves. So we have a situation of a working poor, because also with um, the group of the working in this country, there are many people who do not have access to benefits that majority of us enjoy, benefits like medical aid, benefits like pension funds, benefits like um, saving towards your retirement. You know, many of our people are in jobs where there are no benefits. And, and, and through um, different uh, uh, engagement, we, this has been allowed in this country. And therefore that traps these individuals who claim to be working and employed be trapped in the cycle of poverty. And also the issue of poor wages versus the profits that uh, the owners of capital take. Um, I mean, the evidence is there. When you look even in, in, in companies in our institution, the top salaries of, of, of management, top salaries of CEO versus the people who are doing the 90% of the job, you can see that imbalance. Um, when you look at the profits that mines in this countries are making retailers, corporations, 
are making, when you look at what they are spending for advertising, and when you see what they are paying their employees, there's a huge difference. And that is what is unique to the context of South Africa, because we have ch challenges in really making very clear policies. And sometimes the policies are there, but making sure that they are implemented and people strictly adhere to those policies. We still have people who are working under labor brokers in this country, and we have negotiated that, but have not come. You know, um, the minimum wage issue is there, but it's not there. So that's why the, we have this condition of the working poor. So also inequalities in the distribution of income and wealth, and I talked about earlier on how poverty in this country takes place in the context of opulence uh, because of that inequal distribution of income and wealth. And so also we point out that the high unemployment rate in this country places pressure on high dependency ratio of each salary earner and wage earner in this country. So if you talk to uh, households in, in, in rural areas in this country, you would know that it may be a household of about 13, 14 dependents, and they're depending on one um, wage earner. So every time uh, a, a company closes, every time a company retrenches, it is a majority of the population that is, is, is affected because all these individuals, because of high unemployment rate, are depending on a one wage earner. Okay, and therefore we also talk about the high cost of food as a factor in hunger. So when one of the unique things in this country, when we talk about hunger and household hunger, um, it's not because unlike in other countries where there are famine, where there's drought, and that hunger exists because people, um, there, there's no food in South Africa, families are hungry, households are hungry, children are hungry and are depending on a meal that they're getting from school. But that hunger happens in a context where there is food. It's only because people cannot afford food. Households that are going um, to bed without food is because food is expensive. The high cost of food in this country. And I think as we move forward and we think about interventions and things that we need to do, we need to think about how we can bring the cost of food down. If you, I'm assuming that everyone on this platform, I'm assuming that we are all middle-class by virtue of us affording internet to connect to this uh, colloquium. But if food is expensive, if we are complaining about the cost of food as middle-class people, can we imagine uh, at household level where there's unemployment, where um, uh, the dependency is the state-owned um, pension grant, can we imagine what families have to deal with? So the cost of food, high cost of food is, is an issue that we need to look at in this country. And we also know that women in this country bear the disproportionate burden of poverty. Why? Because we have household, there are high number of female-headed households um, in this country, um, and someone alluded earlier to the issue of uh, absence of fathers, um, uh, women uh, leading households, uh, the high numbers of female-headed households. So poverty, even when you look at employment status, continuously, uh, when you compare the rates of men and women who are um, unemployed consistently, 
uh, women, are, 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 the statistics around unemployment of women are very high. And, and, and so not only do women bear the disproportionate burden of poverty, but they also bear the disproportionate burden of care and provision because in, in households that are headed by women, women have to uh, play that role of being the carer, the nurturer, but also they have to play that role of being providers. Okay, um, the next slide, I want to engage um, the issue of sto state social grants. And, and, and for all of us who um, have families and relatives in, in, in rural areas, in townships, we can all not imagine, we can never imagine this country without social grants. Um, I can only imagine what this country will be without social grants. And when we talk about this very important state social grants, I want to kind of disrupt the, the, the narrative that is so dominant in public discourse. And, and I, I, I heard those narrative coming up even with um, our new minister of finance in, in, in somewhere who was talking about um, the basic income grant and how if we roll out this grant is going to create dependence. It's very important that we disrupt that dependency syndrome and, and really talk about the importance of social grants and how South Africa as a country is applauded worldwide by introducing these cash transfer. And, and it's very important also to disrupt this notion of uh, the undeserving poor, you know, because even as we are seated in this place, we are enjoying some form of benefits from our employer. Many big businesses are enjoying grants, many form of grants from the government. So why it is that whenever we are talking about the poor, we want to portray them, portray them as, you know, they are dependent and if we give them more, they'll be dependent. It is important because also we know that since these grants were rolled out in, in the mid 2000s, for many years, these grants were accessible to other racial groups in this country. And these grants are also in different parts of, of the world. Um, we have um, uh, Bolsa Familia uh, in, 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 I think in, in Brazil, if I'm not mistaken, different countries that are rolling out some form of state intervention. And that is very important. Um, we know with the findings from um, a social Center for Social Development in Africa that this is a stable source of income in majority of our families in this country. We know that there are some families that are getting some remittance from a, an employed family member. Some families are engaging in small um, businesses, but the state social grant remains the only stable source of income. And there's statistics and evidence to prove this. And we also know that the World Bank applauded South Africa for having lifted 18 million people out of poverty, food poverty line. We're talking about food poverty line. The, the, the state SA divides different levels of poverty. Here we're talking about the food poverty line because 18 million of, of recipients of social grants can at least put something on the table because of the social grant. We, so we cannot underestimate the pivotal role that social grants are playing in redistributing income and really stabilizing families. For those of us who know families where it's just a grandmother, we know on when this gogo is paid, 
um, what happens to the family. There's maize meal that is bought, the school fees, there are other things that are taken care of because of this social grants. And so having said that, I really want to point out that these state targeted interventions are making um, a difference. However, it is it remains inadequate. When you look at the needs, when you look at what statistics South Africa calls the daily requirements for household, what each household, whether it's a household of seven, what we need in our basket for daily survival, this grant is in many cases remain inadequate. And therefore there's little appreciable difference at household level because we're seeing over and above this grant, families are still struggling to secure essentials for their survival. So in my next slide, I want to talk about the state as a counterforce. Um, I was at a presentation last week and a question that people continue asking. Um, and this is the question that many of us who uh, from time to time visit townships and engage in conversation with the ordinary, you know, people on the street. Um, the question is, should we engage the state? Should we engage government? Um, the sense that there are, while government is making so many efforts, there are people who are feeling that maybe government has forgotten about us. So question is, should we engage the state? And, and I hold, and I want to um, uh, submit in this presentation that we should engage government and we will engage the state because the state is ours, okay? And, and so how do we engage the state and how do we, make ways of making sure that the state engages in meaningful intervention to ensure sustainable livelihoods. You know, um, the, the 350 grant is so appreciated and it is making a difference, you know, but how do we move beyond uh, this era? How do we make sure that people will have sustainable livelihoods where we're reducing uh, a level of them relying only on the state intervention. So um, for me, social intervention must build on the indigenous community practices. And, and for those of you who have engaged or have lived in township, you will know that while there is hunger, while there is struggle, while there is poverty, there's a way in which community lives together. You know, there's a social, what I call social contract in communities where there's an element called you know, where you have a neighbor or you have a relative or you have a friend where you, you, you kind of get into an agreement that for as long as I'm alive, you will not go to bed hungry. For as long as I'm around, you know, you, you will not starve. Your children will eat. So during what families call difficult times when there's lack, when there's nothing, communities help each other, you know, through going to the next to the neighbor asking for impup millimil going to your neighbor asking for a bread going to your neighbor asking for transport money so that social contract has really made our communities to survive for many generations you know so how do we build on that living together that commitment that communities have that for as long as in I'll make sure that my neighbor doesn't go hungry. I will make sure that whoever needs food, I will share the little that I have because it still exists in our communities. So my view is that if we are to build any form of intervention and sustainable livelihood, we need to build 
on what exists already in community. Um, we need to build on issues like Stockfell. Um, we know that Stockfell is, is really an indigenous knowledge system of our people, putting resources together, saving at the end of the year, sharing. We have people, um, I've heard about women in rural Limpopo who have a stock fell and they saving money for building materials. We have women who are saving stock fell money for school fees, you know. Um, those are very important practices that our people have and we need to build on that. We have the practice of umgalelo or bulk buying or uh, stockpiling. This is a, a way in which communities try to beat big businesses of robbing them and charging high prices. So this is communities putting money together and, and, and buying food at a bulk level and only when food is cheap and then they share that at the end of the year. This has sustained many families and this is something that we can find creative ways of how do we build on that because it has helped many families to survive and it has aided into avoiding family hunger in many families. Um, also, I think there is a need to shift and generate more employment opportunities at a wider spectrum. And we, we, we can never rely only on government or on the private sector. While there are important partners, we also need to find creative ways of building uh, things on a wider spectrum. Uh, and by doing creation of local industries. Um, this is very important, the creation of local industries. So from time to time, when I visit my mother in Everton, I, I visualize driving into this township and seeing a bakery, you know, that is owned by the people, that is subsidized by government, that is distributing affordable bread, you know, um, so the creation of local industries, whether in manufacturing, in textile, in agriculture, is very important and not just handing it to the private sector, but handing it to the local people that we would have trained, given skills and continue to support to make sure that their business survive. Um, we also need to the monopoly of pricing through uh, local food production. When you think and when we all think about what is costing, what we are paying for bread, what we are praying for paying for milk, what we are pray, paying for, for basic, basic poultry uh, products in this country. The reason why all that is expensive is because there is a dominant uh, uh, player or producer of milk who's occupying the market and they are transporting milk maybe from outside the province, bringing it here. And that's why it's so expensive. So if we can find ways of localizing these industries, where, as I said earlier on, I'm imagining my township having a bakery that's producing a bread for that area, bread will be affordable. The same thing with milk, the same thing with producing any other staple necessity in our communities. That is the only way that I think we can deal and help uh, reduce levels of hunger and poverty and, and making sure that the profit is shared uh, distributely and evenly among the group of people. So in, in, my intro, in my conclusion, I want to conclude about um, the important role of civil society movement or of community organization in dealing with inequalities, in dealing with issues of employment, 
or in dealing with any form of change that we will see in this country. The reason that we are seeing this massive looting and violence happening in community um, is because for a long time, maybe there's been a vacuum and maybe for a long time people have felt forgotten. So there is a role for civil society movement to be the agents of change in, in, in whatever situation that is um, affecting communities. Um, historically, we know that collective action and activism uh, has really contributed to where we are today. We know that in this country after 1962, after the Sharpeville shooting, after the burning of um, political movements, after many of our leaders went to exile, we know that there was a vacuum, but we know that it was the civil society that came together and continued to charge and challenge the powers that be at that point in time. So there's a role in which we can work with this collective action and collective action to channel it in a way that will make sure that we engage our government in things that makes us unhappy as a society. And I think, so for me, the issue of, uh, we have a so civil society that is depoliticized and we need to think of ways of repoliticizing that civil society to say, whenever there is a challenge, you have a government that is willing to listen to you. So engage that government. Um, and there are ways of engaging that government. Um, we cannot only engage that government through burning properties. We cannot only engage that government uh, through burning school, but we can engage that government through successful ways that have been modeled. For instance, we know how the treatment action campaign engaged government. And this is why today we have rolled out um, antiretroviral drugs to population of uh, this country. We know that the students during the freeze must fall engaged government. And that's why today we have a free decolonized education in this country because we had a collective that acted in solidarity and challenged government and government listened, okay? And we also have a an example can be the sentence total shutdown, a movement that has come to be called the total shutdown today. This movement engaged government. And for the first time in this country, a president of this country acknowledged the role of ordinary women that came together and said enough is enough. So now we have the national strategy on gender-based violence and femicide because government was engaged and government listened. Today, we have the GBV um, fund, response fund that is rolled out that will help many organizations to engage intervention. So the movement, social movement, social organization have really demonstrated that when this energy is channeled, when communities come together and they channel, they channel this energy in a right direction, we can engage government. And my comfort for me, as a feminist, I'm happy that we can say with a sentence total shutdown, we have seen that the government has listened and it has listened because there are programs in place that we can point out to. So um, we need to find ways of saying to our communities, how do we bring you from the margins of society and we bring you to the center? And how do we establish that there's a core, you know, that people will come to and then engage government collectively. And I still 
want to say in concluding that it is when we take that energy together from communities and we channel and we engage government that we are going to see true and effective change in South Africa. On that note, I want to thank you, program director, and thank you for listening to this presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much um, uh, for that powerful presentation, um, looking at inequality, unemployment, um, and poverty in South Africa. And what I like is the fact that you indicated that, look, when we're looking at our communities, if we can come up with ways in which uh, we can establish community-based uh, business ownership, uh, that could be one of the ways in uh, actually disrupting uh, the situation that we face. You spoke quite a lot about the need to disrupt um, to disrupt the status quo, and you also highlighted um, neoliberal uh, macroeconomic policies as actually conditioning our people to be where they are today, and it's something that needs to be looked at critically and questioned, uh, and not only 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 questioned, but to extend uh, extend that um, it can be that whole cycle can be um, disrupted. You spoke about the, the the deprivation trap. It reminded me actually of that deprivation trap whose pillars are powerlessness. You know, people caught in that uh, trap, are, you know, the pillars of the trap are powerlessness, vulnerability, um, physical weakness, poverty, and isolation. And that is exactly where our people are. And if that circle is not um, disrupted, unfortunately, we'll always hit a cul-de-sac and there's nothing much that can, uh, that can be done. So I want to take two questions um, or two comments from the, from the audience. Then after that, I want to invite the minister to, to come back to the podium and respond to the discussions that we've had thus far. Um, I want to also highlight to, to, to attendees here that the minister will, 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 leave, will be leaving us um, in no time because she's got, um, she's got to travel to, to Cape Town. So it is important that um, we, 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 we engage her at this point, at this juncture, uh, and get to hear her um, on what she has to say about the engagements that we've had, or also actually give us uh, some parting shots as it were. But the fact that the minister will be leaving, the minister has got a ministerial team that she, she, she brought with her. So that team remains with us. You saw that she was introduced by uh, Dr. Butelezi. So that whole team is still with us. So the minister is all ears, even if she's not here physically with us. So let me take um, the two comments from the, from the, uh, the attendees and see what we get and then invite the minister. Anyone raising a hand? Okay, the, okay. No, in actual fact, that is the minister raising her hand. Um, all right. Ndombela, um, uh, let me see what Ndombela is saying. Um, let us not forget, okay, Ndombela is saying, oh, that was Jennifer. Um, then Ndombela is saying, thanks, uh, doctor. Okay, nice presentation. Communities can be supported in their own initiatives. That is, that, that is powerful. So if there's no one else raising a hand, then I think we, that further ado, we can then invite the minister uh, to engage with us at this, uh, this juncture, as I've already indicated. Uh, the Honorable Minister. Um, thank you very much, Mpumelelo, um, for that. And I, I tried to be in the meeting as far as I possibly could. You know, Wednesdays are not good day because we also have cabinet. And, and so I, I, I tried to listen with both ears. I, firstly, I'd like to thank um, uh, the presenters, uh, including just the 
the last presentation that has been made now. Um, and I would like to say and uh, I, I really appreciate the fact that the areas uh, which were identified as areas for discussion here, they fit in very well with our responsibility and our work as a Department of Social Development. And before I make my, my concluding remarks, I'm, I'm reading at the moment, I think academics are people who like reading a lot. Um, I'm reading um, Yuval Noah Harari at the moment. And um, um, he talk, he, his book is 20, 21 Lessons from the 21st Century. As I was reading the book, uh, I was just amazed also at the fact that he raised the issue of the basic income grant. It's in the book. And I think that people like him, writers like him, who are seeing that as something that uh, governments in different places have used or governments in some places have not um, adopted it. And we, as the government at the moment, are debating the issue of the basic income grant is of major importance to us. But where I thought I would, I would, I would quote him, uh, where he's busy talking about um, um, computers and algorithms and all that, but there's somewhere, and I, I wish to quote him here so that I don't get quoting him. He's talking about, and I quote, so if humans are needed neither as producers nor consumers, there's a problem here. Somebody has been muted. Wait, wait. You need to mute. Oh, sorry, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, so he says, and I quote, so if humans, and this must be understood um, uh, in relation to the uh, 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 computers, the robots, the algorithms, and the future, what it's going to look like. And so he says, so if humans are needed neither as producers nor as consumers, what will safeguard their physical survival and their psychosocial, so psychological well-being? And he says, we cannot wait for the crisis to erupt in full force before we start looking for answers. And we know everyone's been talking about what recently happened now. By then it will be too late. And he says, in order to cope with the unprecedented technological and economic disruptions of the 21st century, we need to develop new social and economic models as soon as possible. These models should be guided by the principle of protecting humans rather than jobs. Many jobs are uninspiring drudgery, not worth saving. That can be an argument for another day. But nobody's life dream is that to be a cashier. What we should focus on is providing for people's basic needs and protecting their social status and self-worth. And so having been listening to everyone who spoke here, and of course reading that book, in, in fact, it was listening to everyone um, speaking here that I, I remember that somewhere I read um, what he was saying. And I think that um, we need to leapfrog, unfortunately for us, leapfrog frog, uh, to the 21st century and begin to have solutions that really speak to the felt needs of our people. And I like um, uh, the last speaker, for instance, where he's asking, she's asked, she said, um, uh, she posed the question, should we listen to the, should people listen to the state? And she answers that herself, 
by saying that we need to engage the state because the state is ours. As long as the state remain ours, and as long as the state um, is open to the engagement and the discussion, it therefore means that the meaningful interventions that the state can, uh, uh, can put in place, uh, whether it's about the economy, whether it's about housing, whether it's about transport, whether it's about everything, the state would be responding um, to the needs of the people as she eloquently spoke about the issue of gender-based violence and what government did and what the state has been doing um, in, in ensuring that uh, we respond to those needs. So this government is listening and therefore it's important for, our, for ourselves and um, both a government and yourselves to engage um, as active citizen. We need to intentionally revisit cross society active citizenship. This will contribute towards en enhancing ownership, patriotism and self-worth because I was thinking to myself that even those people who went out and were looting and were burning and whatever, if you have people as many as those who do not see the need for them to be protecting something, then we've got a, a, a big problem. It therefore is important for us to also make people to feel they belong, to make people feel that even the economy is for them, to make them feel that even the business, they can be the owners of that business. Even if it's a business of a woman standing by the roadside selling something, as long as she knows that she's being supported also by the government to either grow that business that she's doing or sustain um, the business that, is, that she's doing is very important. The other issue that I want to speak to quickly is the issue of, of trauma. And I, I, I did indicate in my speech about the fact that since the advent of COVID-19, government has been observing the patterns of COVID-19-induced trauma. We are at a point where we need to institutionalize multidisciplinary trauma services throughout our society so that the issue of dealing with trauma is not only thrown um, to social workers uh, and then said, okay, who is responsible for social workers? It is the Department of Social Development. These, um, uh, these uh, uh, social workers, for instance, are people that are supposed to be on every street um, and, and, and stretched street to street, house to house, so that they can be able to deal with that trauma before it expresses itself um, through the individuals in a different way. And then, of course, the basic income grant, and this government concluded the philosophical debates on the big 23 years ago, and that's in 1998. A few weeks ago, cabinet instructed uh, myself as Minister of Social Development and the Minister of uh, Finance to co-produce funding framework for the basic income grant. So I go back to that quotation also of um, Harari, when he speaks about ensuring that it's the well-being of the people that we need um, to focus on. And therefore, the colloquium is challenging the social sciences to reclaim the narrative that defines policy priorities from uh, within the social policy vantage point. In reclaiming your space in society, we will address the challenges such as growing inequalities, poverty in communities where our people live. I have assigned uh, now our DDG for strategy and organizational transformation, Tavani Buteleze, to continue sitting in there for me while he will answer some of the questions and provide you 
um, with some written responses if need be. But I do want to sincerely thank you for the initiative and say, can, it, can we make sure that it's not um, an engagement of those of us who are privileged, both as intellectuals, as government, as officials, um, who wake up in the morning and feel the comfort of the warmth of our homes, and um, we can be able to get the food and bring the food uh, home. Can we move uh, beyond ourselves and start thinking of how can we improve the lives of our people because they did not put themselves where they are and they believe in us and they, uh, they have hope, they live in hope that will make the change for them. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Minister, um, with those um, parting shots. Uh, and I think you, you, you're making critical points uh, that you're raising here. Um, and again, calling for us to really harness our energies towards this uh, this agenda that we, we're setting here. And I like it, especially at the, at the, at the end, where you're also um, calling for us to broaden the platform and ensure that we reach out to, to people. Let the, let the platform respond to the needs of the people in such a way that at the end of the day, we can look back and say, yes, we did it, we managed to do it. Um, and collectively, we can we can do it in that way. You're raising an, an issue of um, the basic income grant, let that be tied to, 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 to a national cause as opposed to just being a handout given to the people. Let it be tied to a national cause. Let it be seen as an investment uh, to human capital. And we must have a way of tracking that investment. It can't just be that we're handing out. So it is our role again in such in such platforms such as these ones where we say, but how then do we track um, these basic income grants and uh, having tied them into um, human capital investment? It is important that at the end of the day, unfortunately, the, the returns of this investment is not quite something that you can see tomorrow or the day after, but it's something that you can see after years, 10 years, 15 years, on the long term. So are we in a position to track the, the returns of the basic income grant, or not even the basic income grant, any other grant that we have, for instance, if you're looking at the child support grant and what all, all, all other uh, grants that we might have here. So it's an, it's an engagement that we need to continuously have to try and see that we really respond to this cause. Before you depart, Minister, may I also invite uh, Dr. Noyo, you might want to have a word before the minister um, departs. Prof. Noyo. Oh, right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Program Director. And uh, uh, thank you so much, Honorable Minister, for spend, spending time with us. We are inspired that government uh, is lending us an ear, and we are also inspired to move forward with a resolute agenda setting where we will bring our intellectual uh, capital to the uh, nation building and, 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 and of the country. Uh, thank you so much, Minister, for, for, for attending. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, uh, Professor Noyo, for that. Um, as indicated, the minister will be leaving us soon. Um, but as I indicated earlier on, that we do have the ministerial team with us. So the, the program continues um, as such. Uh, and I want to now, because uh, Dr. Natane made a presentation and she raised quite a lot of valuable points, some of which the minister has already touched on, I want to invite um, the comments or questions based on her presentation. If there are any, I see some of the comments were, were put here on the chat, uh, they are here on the chat room that we have. Uh, um, yes, I see some comments from Dr. Sibulao, 
um, Dombela, I see yours there, Mkwanazi as well, uh, Matsani, I see all your comments there. Okay, uh, is there any hand perhaps? Okay, so no hand, then it'll mean that, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take those comments as, as final. And uh, let me thank you, Dr. Nathan, for that powerful presentation and of course those uh, those proposals that you made as we indicated earlier on that at the end of the day we're going to collect all these proposals that have been made and try and put them in a write-up and see how best then they can be communicated to the to the ministry in a manner that they can be put because they are tangible uh, proposals they can be put into practice it shouldn't just end here as a talk show okay let me now then uh, colleagues allow me to invite um, um from the ufs university of free state uh, the department of um, community development to make her presentation now she's focusing on uh, political intolerance in south africa and maybe before i do that um i want to check uh, with uh, dr natani if you want to respond uh, after the minister reflected on some of the things that you raised if you've got anything that you might want to say and as far as that is concerned i'll give you this opportunity then thereafter i'll go to um not necessarily but i think for me it's mine is just to thank um this platform and the organizers and to say really if we think about solutions these must definitely be solutions that are coming from our people. And I think very important that in social work, as we always say, people are the experts of their own experiences. If we want solutions that will be effective and that will work, let us engage communities. There's so much wisdom you know, that we can tap into. There's so much indigenous wisdom that exists already in community. Shifting the lens that we view uh, the poor with is very important because it is only as we view them as powerful beings who are here uh, in a meaningful way and they want to actively participate in their already that shift even the way we'll intervene, we have to look at the poor as people who have agency, who are in charge and who want to do uh, live productive and meaningful lives where they have the dignity of providing for themselves and not just dependent of grants. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Natane. We appreciate that it is this kind of um, intellectual capital that we are trying to enhance um, to, or rather to harness here um, so, so, such that, so that um, as we move forward, engaging, be it engaging with um, other stakeholders up to the point of engaging with the people on the ground, we know that we've covered, uh, we've covered the ground and we know that we've covered um, all angles and as far as intellectual um, the capital is concerned. So we highly appreciate that, Dr. Natane. Then we then colleagues allow me to invite uh, please come forward uh, and make a presentation on political intolerance in South Africa. We're living at times where sometimes really you see that uh, it is this political intolerance that takes us 10 steps backwards as, to, as, as Professor Noyo indicated earlier on that sometimes we try and move forward but uh, in no time you realize that we are 10, 10 steps um, backwards. So uh, um, please come forward. Good afternoon, first and foremost, Honorable Minister. I am I'm humbled and excited 
to be on this platform with someone of your caliber it's it's uncommon and it's a very necessary platform for dialogue um a lot of times we see our leaders as people far away but you're showing us that you're not far away you're amongst us you're with us and I'm, I'm 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 really grateful for that and i think it will encourage a lot of working together and and passion and an enthusiasm because we are not in this alone. There is no you and your office and the rest of us. So this this is a privilege, and I, I am truly truly grateful for that. Thank you for being here. Um, good afternoon to the rest of the colleagues, especially the colloquium organizers. Um, I appreciate this opportunity, and I appreciate. Um, having to talk about something that I would ordinarily not talk about, if I may put it that way. If we talk about politics and intolerance, it's one of those conversations that are best left alone because we don't want to ruffle our feathers and we also are not sure where we stand as, as a general society. But once um, faced, so much actually unravels. So it's quite exciting to talk about something that is, is almost uncomfortable, but not talking about it is way more than uncomfortable. So I'm going to share my screen and, okay, not that one. Okay, so my name is Namsa Bodhlamini, as uh, Mbomelelo has said, and I'm a lecturer in community development at the University of Free State. And I'm going to be talking about political intolerance in South Africa. So to start, I'm going to give you two scenarios. The first one being um, about a man called Babet Lamin. And I think I need to, okay. I just need to escape from here because I can't read when the screen is full. Meet Babet Lamin, a freedom fighter who dedicated his youth fighting for freedom, who understood far too well the brutal pain of losing loved ones whose blood waters our freedom. But most importantly, a man who understands that liberation is priceless. 26 April 1994 was a day he didn't think he would live to see. For hours on end, he queued, taking in with profound joy the atmosphere of the day, the endless singing, occasional dancing, and in brief moments, a tang of fear that someone might wake him from his sleep or hell may break loose, as was common for gatherings of that of masses of that nature back then. When his, vote was, when his vote was cast, he felt he had lived for his purpose. His life had come full circle. He preached about the importance of voting and the privilege of it too. It was, it was very disturbing to see him stay away, stay home during the 2014 and 2019 national elections. He didn't go to vote. It was even more harder watching him live on hand to mouth 
for years after independence with his tertiary qualifications. Then we go to the second scenario where you meet my students. In 2019, about a group of 90 community development students um, and I had conversations just after the elections about, well, I actually walked into class and I was showing off my thumb. Guys, let me see your thumbs. Have you voted? Um, did you go to cast your vote? You know it's, it's, you, it's your responsibility to play an active role. Less than a third of the class voted in those elections, yet all of them were eligible to vote. Some of them had voted before, but not that time. All of them were given time off by the university to go to polling stations to vote, even those who had registered in their provinces outside of a free state. There was actually a university break to allow for voting. So then I engaged with them. Why, 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 why this poor turnout? And I got a haunting answer. It stayed with me to this very day. Ma'am, what's the point of voting? It doesn't change anything for our communities. Whether we vote or not, nothing changes. All the promises are just that, promises. We still don't have adequate water and electricity in Guadua, a very basic need and a human right. Our roads are getting worse. And the majority of our peers are unemployed. When I was preparing for this, I thought I should give that background, which um, is also then illustrated in the voter turnout since 1994. If we look at what happened in 1994, of people who were registered to vote, 86.9 turned out, 1999, 88%, which was quite impressive. Then there was a decline in 2004 to 76%. 2009 was a bit promising because it went up a bit to 77. But in 2014 and 2019, things just started going south. 2014, 73.4 people who registered to vote voted. And in 2019, a shocking 65.5.34 voted. There's a decline of more than 20% 20, 20 from 1994 to 2019. And it makes you wonder why, why are people who are eligible to vote not going to vote? People who are registered to vote not going to vote? Which takes me then to the next slide, which talks about political intolerance. And before we get into why and what the issues are. I thought it's important to just highlight some of the headlines that have come across, especially after the recent riots. Um, and then before I do that, I must first define political intolerance. Gibson 2013 defines political intolerance as the unwillingness to put up with disagreeable ideas and groups. So people become unwilling to put up with anything they disagree with or any group they disagree with. Intolerance is also defined as something related to emotional reactions to target groups. So it's not just an unwillingness, but the, they then also become a space for 
emotional reaction. Three particular emotions have dominated intolerance, fear, anger, and hatred. Perhaps that explains the recent riots, but also it explains not just the recent riots, but the behavior of people who are not happy towards their own infrastructure. Um, schools have been bent down, infrastructure has been destroyed, people have, have been killed because of the differing views and um, unwillingness to, to agree. Intolerance is also defined as a social outcome. People learn where they belong in society. And once they have knowledge of their belonging, they can identify where they believe they don't belong. So first of all, I identify with some place or some party. And within that space, I then identify what I don't belong to. Perhaps I don't belong to the opposition because I like this better, or I don't belong to certain circles in my community because this is what I identify with. Um, then after identifying where they don't belong, it becomes easier to create enemies and threats are easily passed on amongst the people who don't identify as belonging to one group. I think we've all seen that during election campaigns, some of them get out of hand and violent, um, their threats, their insults, sometimes even brutal killings within political um, structures as well. Once their factions, we have seen fear, anger, hatred, and we also then have witnessed violence. What is that in today's, um, what's the relevance of that in today's conversation? How does that definition emancipate in our times, in our society right now? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I looked at headlines, newspaper headlines, online um, websites as well. And they paint a picture of what intoleration, I mean, intolerant behavior manifests as. Um, one headline says political paralysis at the heart of violence and looting is what happens due to intolerance of what's happening. And therefore there's a link to political paralysis and intolerance and political intolerance. Um, a, South, a South African rioter blames unemployment for, an un, for the unrest. This person was looting and said, I loot because I can't find a job, even if though I've been looking for one. Um, the next headline speaks about South African needs a new progressive popular political movement that boldly tackles our festering ills. So there's a suggestion of festering ills, which may then make people feel like either they don't belong or other people belong better in certain circles. And one headline speaks about South African riots revealing political failure. Does political intolerance have a relationship with political failure? The final headline that I saw was um, from the president Somebody is talking. Can they please move their mic? I can't see who they are. Hey, Maria, I'm going to go to the 
Bumelayo, can you see who is not? Okay, someone talking. Yeah, please, Nathan. Nathan Loy, please uh, mute your mic. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Prof. Um, the headline on the presidency, in fact, it wasn't even a headline, it was part of um, the report. President Cyril Ramaphosa, in a nationwide address on July 12th, acknowledged that notwithstanding the initial trigger, the widespread looting is also driven by hardship and poverty. So we are looking at um, looting and political paralysis. We are looking at unemployment. We are looking at the possibility of a progressive popular political movement, whatever that may be defined as according to the different people involved and also festering ills, political failure, and hardship and poverty. That's what would define intolerance. But we are in this space because we have a lot of witnesses. We ourselves are witnesses of what happens when people become afraid, when people become um, aggressive, when people decide not to vote, when people back off and, and, and not get involved, when people decide to destroy what they have, um, their infrastructure and all that. And I think it's important that we discuss what do we do? We can spend a lot of time looking at the characteristics of intolerance which are very visible in, on our, in, in, in all our corners, not just South Africa. If you look at a lot of our other countries and democracy systems and monarchy systems, there's a lot of um, riots and uprisings and total ignorance, if I may call it that, on the political space. So what do we do? Perhaps to start, we must acknowledge that there is an intolerant attitude in our society. People have become intolerant. Um, and that if we want to get to a place where people become tolerant, there are things that need to be unlearned. There are certain behaviors that people need to unlearn and certain experiences. I know that um, speakers before me have spoken about um, past hurts, past experiences, um, things that need healing, mental issues as well, which are still grappling our community because of past traumas. But we must know that we can't decide to take a drive for tolerance if we don't unpack intolerance, if we don't understand how we got to where we are face it, acknowledge it, learn the lessons, then move on to the new space we want to get to. If we blindly go on a campaign now for people becoming tolerant and ignoring what created intolerance, we stand a chance of risking a society that is 
growing a bubble inside of them that will eventually burst, like we saw it quite recently in the riots. Um, if we look at the political face right now, we need to look at the shortcomings. What can we improve within our political system? When we look at the shortcomings, we will obviously look at what's working. How do we advance what's working? How can we improve what's not working? What changes can we bring about? Then a very important thing, which actually is part of the definition of community development, um, speaks about education and citizen participative democracy. I'm going to pause for a minute. It's not educating citizens on democracy, but participative democracy. We all know what democracy is. My voice is my, my vote is my voice. It's my right. It's all that. I mean, if you ask anyone who has listened to adverts before elections, who has seen campaigns, they'll tell you that this is what democracy means. But do we understand what particip participative democracy is? Do we understand the role that we play as society, as, as, as social scientists, as educators, as parents, as siblings in participative democracy? It plays a special role in addressing inequality in society to bring about deepening democracy founded on social justice, equality, and inclusion. If we look at participative democracy and, 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 and put measures in place to educate society on participative democracy, we will be addressing inequality in society. We will be deepening democracy, the knowledge of democracy, and obviously taking care of social justice, equality, and inclusion. If we go back to the definition of intolerance, there was a part which spoke of different factions where you belong somewhere and then you identify where you don't belong. And that can be tackled when we talk about equality and inclusion. When people feel included, there's a speaker who, I think there was a question about how do we, how do we make people aware that they need to protect their community assets? Well, people protect what they own. And the minute it's not theirs, although it may actually be theirs, but if they don't feel the sense of ownership, if they don't belong in that space, it's very easy for them to destroy, to hurt the other person, to convey their anger, to convey their fear. So we need to formulate a plan for citizens to participate in democracy, not just to be in a democratic state, but to participate actively in democracy. Then um, this is actually a recommendation. Before I had this um, presentation finalized, I, I spoke to my current fourth year students who are on campus for their workshop and just, just you know, a dialogue about what would you like to see change for you to be more tolerant, for you to vote, for you to be involved in your own democracy. And there's a recommendation for access to political leadership positions, um, especially for the young people. They said, you know, ma'am, we are in a space where we look at all the people who are in power and they are the people who are much more elderly to us, whom we don't relate much to. 
They don't want to take over people's jobs, but they want access. They want to see people in key positions who make them feel the, the belonging that they're looking for. Right now, it's the parliament, the political parties of all these people who were born before us, who probably fought in the struggle. And we have very little to do with identity, which is embedded in belonging. When you belong somewhere, there's a part of your identity that you see in the place that you belong. So perhaps we need to think about and strategize, how do we bring a sense of belonging for young people into the political space? And also that space, if it's integrated and there's young people and, and, and the elderly and the not so elderly, there'll be knowledge sharing. You know, one of the things that I worry about a lot is there's gonna come a time where the people who fought for democracy will no longer be here when that generation is gone. And the generation that comes after the generation would have no idea how to even live within that democracy because they were not involved in fighting for it. They were not involved um, in working for it in its conception. They were not involved in making sure that it speaks to future identities as well. Um, another thing that I recommend is a collection of indigenous knowledge, indigenous knowledge of addressing societal issues. So a lot of the problems that we speak about now are not new. There may be new ways of manifestation, but poverty has always been a problem. Not belonging has always been a problem. Not wanting to be involved has, has to some extent been a problem historically. How were those issues addressed? What happened? What changed? What brought about the much desired unity? What brought about the much desired participation of citizens? And I think it would be advisable to probably form a research team and not just with researchers, because if, if we just form a research team of academics, chances are whatever we look for will be heavily theoretical that the lay person doesn't understand much of it. So it should be a, a mixed group of people who have knowledge and, and, and hunger to get knowledge on how, how were indigenous practices concerning political intolerance and other issues that we face which lead to political intolerance. Um, then I think I spoke briefly in one of the previous points, and I'm reiterating this, a sense of ownership for community assets from inclusion in planning and execution of developmental initiatives. Um, those close to me, those that I've engaged with know that I often say I dislike with a passion the term service delivery because it is misunderstood and sometimes misused. If you go into community development and you go into a community setting with service delivery, people expect you to deliver a service to them. There is no part in their involvement. There is no part in them planning for whatever service it is. So perhaps we need to rephrase and also re rework how we 
make sure that services are up to date and, 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 and you know, in line with what we need. People need to be a part of planning. If, 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 for example, a stadium is built in my community and I just get involved because they, I, they, the builders are mandated to hire 10% of the locals. I, I wasn't aware of the planning of the stadium, the need of the stadium. I wasn't asked at all if there is, a, there is even a need for the stadium. I'm not going to have that sense of ownership. And if I think municipality built the stadium, chances are when I'm angry at municipality, I'm going to take it out on that stadium because I can't really reach municipality. And that's some of the examples that also came from the class. Like we need to own from planning to executing to maintaining assets that belong to communities. Um, and then looking at how our young people are so hooked on applications, on internet, on gadgets, perhaps it would be a wise thing to invest in a electronic platform like an app or a website that has all this friendly and easy to read along information on politics, on reporting structures. Say for example, I'm, I, if, if people in, in Kwakwa are really, really fed up with their issue of water, instead of going to the streets and, 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 and destroying the little they have, they should have a clear path to say, this, this app says, if you're not happy with this, then this is where you report. And if that's not met in that place where you report, then that's where you follow up until it gets to the president, for example. And also um, this should be targeted to school going children as well, because if they're ignored, they soon will be running the country. And they might be very, very clueless about what is happening. And they'll run the country for the sake of running the country without having the fundamental knowledge that the people who fought for the country have. There's a wealth of knowledge in the generation that will soon actually pass. And this must be put on platforms which are available and easy to use um, for young people. And also people need to start learning about the significance of politics in their lives and the power of their role in the political theme. Then um, I think I actually had someone and I thought that's quite important. I had written about um, revisiting education system and there was a mention. I think the minister also spoke about starting them very young. Let them know, let them be educated at a very young age. If we look at our current education system, um, it doesn't teach us much about politics. It doesn't teach us much about our role. It doesn't teach us much about anything outside of the mandated subjects. Yes, there have been some sort of improvement, but it will be very wise to also start learning about certain things which will help us be active in political spaces, but also not that. To, 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 to respond to issues of poverty, for example, and unemployment, perhaps we need to revisit skills development in the high school system. I, I remember when I was growing up, there was a subject called woodwork and people would make tables and desks in high school. I don't know what happened to that subject. We need more of those. We need more of 
things that will equip people who cannot get into tertiary because not everyone will get into tertiary to earn some sort of a living to be able to actually have a skill that is able to have them put food on the table if our high school um, structure allows people to get a skill like like sewing for example and not just in specific special schools but across the board it would help a, a great deal with a lot of the problems that we face nowadays because it would also move the mindset of our young people from wanting to be employed to actually creating employment with the little skill sets that they have and my closing statement is actually a quote from Gibson, 2013, which has been quoted indirectly the, to summarize. Uh, political tolerance requires that citizens and government put up with ideas that are thought to be objectionable. Two terms need to, put up, to be put up for consideration. Which ideas must be put up with? We need to consider that and which activities must be allowed. Because when we say we want political toleration, we don't say that we want to tolerate every activity, but we need to agree. We may have objections, but at some point we need to put on the table and agree on what needs to be put up with in terms of our politics, our democracy, our citizenship um, participation and which activities do we need to focus on as a country, as, 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 as academics, as young people, as the future of South Africa? The answers to both of these questions are intimately related, not just to the conceptualization of tolerance, but to also its operationalization. So tolerance can be achieved, but we've got to be able to have dialogue, we've got to be able to choose what we focus on and how we work on. And although it may be, uh, it may be objectable, if we object to it, we've got to be able to also then discuss why the objections and see what works best for everyone. Um, thank you very much. I'm Thank trying to unshare my screen. Oh, OK. Thank you, Simon Kulu. You did very well. Um, we appreciate the presentation looking at political intolerance and, and its impact on um, uh, basically the status quo that we're grappling with today, looking at um, we, we, we violence within uh, violence that gets to imbue most of the uh, problems. Uh, people embark on, and you are highlighting critical um, issues here, uh, say in, uh, indicating the genesis of, 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 of uh, political uh, intolerance and how it affects uh, and how it, it finds itself in political uh, or in, in, in protests, be it protests for service delivery or wage protests and, and whatnot. But then uh, I think you raised quite a lot of critical questions. One, one of the things that you, uh, you you raised, the point that you raised here was one that speaks of depending democracy. It'll be important perhaps at, at some point in time, perhaps as one of the questions to indicate what what, what what your understanding of depending democracy um, is, well, if you're looking at our democracy, um, it, 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 at what stage are we at? Uh, it, perhaps in comparison to other 
mature democracies, you know, they are mature democracies, for instance, if you look at the West uh, and the North, uh, they usually do talk of mature democracies and you look at our democracies, where are we running short? Um, and is there a way of actually uh, deepening it, as you indicated, that we need to deepen democracy? How should it be understood? And you also spoke of enculturation. You know, we need to encourage um, the young people on the values of democracy. Uh, at this point in time, you're highlighting that uh, perhaps there's less appreciation of the values of democracy, especially by, by young people, such that in the long run, we might find ourselves in, a, in an unfortunate circumstances where we've basically lost everything and unfortunately there will not be anyone to learn from because the current generation or even the generation that actually delivered us to where we are today will have come and gone and most will be left um, to us to deal with. Okay, so let me then entertain questions uh, from the from the participants. I saw that there's quite a number of comments which I want to go through here. Um, of course, we've got Jennifer there, um, very active on our chat box. Thank you very much for that, uh, Jennifer. Uh, she's actually appreciating um, your presentation. Uh, she's indicating that it is a realistic, practical presentation that brings um, imagery um, with uh, with to the mind. Um, she indicates that she also is in, in that. Uh, the school system that you, you you brought forward, we need artisans in our society and not just uh, just the academics. Uh, and then of course, um, Jessica as well, she's appreciating your presentation. Are there any questions, colleagues, uh, or comments that you may want to, to raise at this point in time, uh, leveled to, um, directed to, 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 to Lamine Namtebo? Any questions, let me entertain questions if there are any questions at this point. Okay, it seems there are no hands that are coming up, only those co comments that were raised by Jessica and Jennifer. Uh, would you uh, want to res respond to what I've just said now, looking at how do we depend democracy? Uh, and of course, I think you spoke at length regarding um, enculturation thereof. Um, I think it's, it's important to probably yes. look at if we, if, if, we, if we talk about deepening democracy, what are we talking about? Um, are we talking about making it just deep in terms of creating more active citizen participation in democracy? Or are we talking about strengthening the knowledge? I think before something can be strengthened, there needs to be a deepened understanding of it. Um, perhaps the byproduct of a deepened democracy will be a strengthened democracy. Why, why, why I mention this is because a lot of times people are ignorant to what democracy really means, besides voting, besides seeing what the political parties and representatives are saying and doing. There needs to be a deeper understanding, a thorough understanding. And then in that, our democracy will be strengthened. So I don't think those two terms can be separated in the sense that, that one has to be done over the other, but one will definitely be a result of the other. Thank you. So you are muted. 
Okay, thank you very much, Namitabo, for the presentation. Um, and uh, again, the response to, the, to, to this indicating how democracy needs to be de uh, deepened. It should go beyond, as you are indicating, go beyond just casting uh, one casting their vote. It doesn't end there. People must understand the values of democracy. But uh, at some point in time, we need to say then, how do we ensure that people, especially the young ones, they understand the values of democracy? Uh, and how do we ensure that our democracy fits our situation? Because it will seem that at times we tend to take a lot from the West, trying to put it in our situation, only to find that it doesn't fit our situation. Who should define this democracy for us? Uh, and so forth. That's why sometimes this misunderstanding um, of what democracy is sometimes breeds political intolerance, as you rightfully indicated earlier on. Thank you very much, Nomitsebo. Can we then, colleagues, allow, please allow me to invite um, the next uh, speaker, presenter uh, is Dr. Craig Magaiza um, from the department. He's the head of the Department of Community Development uh, at the University of Free State. He's based at the campus. Dr. Magaiza. And um, can you see my, my screen? Yes, I can see it. Thank you. Right, I'm just trying to expand it some more. Well, I'm trying to go up. But, uh, doesn't seem to be happening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Gray Magaiza, and uh, I'd like to recognize the minister in her absence, uh, my vice dean, Professor Twala, the head of the Zola Spear Institute, uh, Prof. Noyo, the DDG, Babusheng, Mr. Telezi. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, all protocols observe. Thank you so much for this opportunity to present on this. My topic is uh, on active citizenship uh, and, and, and uh, framing active citizenship pathways, post-protest post praxis for sustainable communities in South Africa. Uh, one of the advantages of uh, presenting uh, a bit late is that uh, most of the work has been done by the previous presenters. But uh, we will continue in that uh, in that regard. So, in terms of my presentation outline, I'm going to contextualize active citizenship within South Africa. I'm also going to outline uh, the drivers to foster active citizenship in a post-protest context, and I'm also going to suggest some praxis that can mutually reinforce existing policy infrastructure and community development you know, approaches. And um, as, 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 as a preface, as a precursor to my presentation, I would like to mention that I'm working within a positive framework, um, an intentionally positive view of, of citizens that not only reaffirms um, the agency uh, of, of, of citizens in the country, but deliberately considers them as capable self-organizing entities who actively pursue their own interest in the public domain. So I'm emphasizing on agency in terms of my presentation, and it's a fact that many South Africans 
are concerned about uh, their living realities uh, and would like to contribute to the realization of a wide range of public values. Um, and, 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 and research confirms this uh, um, with many examples in which citizens successfully contribute to important public benefits across uh, numerous uh, policy domains. So when citizens feel challenged and motivated to address their concerns, and when they are sufficiently equipped and skilled to do so, they act in the public domain with or without the involvement of the state apparatus. So in a way, I'm trying to capture what both Dr. Uh, Natane and Prof. Noyo were mentioning about separating the state, separating dependency on the state and ensuring that citizens become more and more self-dependent. So in terms of active citizenship, you know, we, we, we have to, uh, because of the nature of this conversation, we have to also delve a bit into literature. We, my understanding of active citizenship is strengthening democracy in order to support democratic cooperation, the institutions that uh, support uh, you know, democratic uh, dispensations, but that is based on the acceptance of universal human rights, the rule of law, uh, valuing diversity, but also including the whole community. Active citizenship in this case would be participating in civil society and or political life characterized by mutual respect and non-violence. And I put that in red to also reaffirm uh, the theme of this conversation, of this colloquium, but also um, to, to, to re-emphasize the importance of human rights and also of, 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 demo, of, of, of democracy in itself. So what are the drivers of active citizenship? Um, active citizenship is evocative of notions of community, of citizenship, uh, and empowerment, and speaks to the presumed intrinsic benefits of public engagement in decision-making. The idea is that the process of participation is and should be valued as a good in itself, Yet active citizenship consists more, consists more than simply increasing the level of public participation for its own sake. It demands participation with a purpose. Now that purpose is to engage people, which is the second dimension, to engage people in making uh, their communities better places for themselves and for those around them. But in terms of understanding what these uh, uh, engagement spaces, what inclusion and participation entails, it has to be data-centric. We need the evidence, the proof that engagement is happening. We need to identify uh, the spheres of research where engagement is occurring, the data sets that prove that, the, the, the qualitative uh, indicators that prove that, but also, not only that, but active citizenship entails a responsiveness. <clears throat> a responsiveness on multiple levels, a responsiveness at, um, from the community uh, in itself, a responsiveness to issues, a responsiveness from government to community issues in order for all of them to participate in trying to solve these issues and to, to, to engage with communities at different levels. 
Um, it is also multi-institutional collaboration uh, in, 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 in contemporary society, especially now, uh, many different government governance practices coexist. Such systems in which different actors, including government authorities, citizens, NGOs, communities, and businesses seek to accomplish their objectives um, uh, are polycentric and becoming increasingly complex. So we need to also support citizens in terms of how do they navigate this polycentric uh, phenomenon and how do they ensure that uh, outcomes sought by all stakeholders are achieved. So when we, when we speak of active citizenship within the South African context, we don't have to um, go far. The policy call is there. The NDP uh, 2030, and I'm it's already quoted, I've already quoted there. Active citizenry and social activism is necessary for democracy and development to flourish. So in terms of the policy infrastructure or, or the policy statements that support the need for active citizenry, we have it nationally. Um, and, 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 and it's already stated, the state cannot merely act on behalf of the people. It is to act with the people, working together with other institutions to provide opportunities for the advancement of all communities. So in terms of, you know, from that perspective, um, the policy mechanisms and the policy platforms for, for, for active citizenship, for active citizenry are already there. Um, and, 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 and it's, it's important to follow through, you know, to, to, to ensure that what we do and what we promise as in terms of the policy prescripts is uh, actually implemented. Now, within the context of what has happened, I will not get into that, uh, of what, I will not get into what has happened, but I'm going to uh, offer some, um, you can, depending on how you look at them, either long-term, medium-term, or short-term uh, 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 solutions. The obvious one is we need to re, um, regain or reestablish the balance or homeostasis of communities and the security cluster being the first one to get into the communities and really ensure uh, that we bring back uh, law and order. But while as we do that, we, we also need to think what other praxis can we have for sustainable communities? Because as even Prof. Noy rightfully mentioned, actions have to happen at the community level. We have been successful at the individual, the psychological levels that has happened, but now we need to bring in place how, what are the types of actions that we can use to strengthen the community level and um, uh, my concept of praxis here entails critical reflection and action um, by enabling communities to rethink uh, in, you know, to, 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 by thorough engagement of communities in real world issues that shape their lives, such as those, for example, explained by Dr. Nathani, um, unemployment, inequality, and poverty. So how do communities explore or critically reflect experience and what actions emerge from these experiences. So the first one for me, it's, it's, a, 
it can, depending on how you look at it, it can be short term, medium term, or long term. Re-emphasize or remodel education. Educational programs need to be developed to improve competencies like cooperation, communication, as well as working to increase critical thinking, ethical reasoning, uh, reduce prejudice and build tolerance, understanding, empathy, all those civic human, uh, uh, human principles that are important uh, to prepare students to participate in the political, social, and economic affairs of democracy. These are, this is not an easy task. Um, the educational continuum from ECD all the way up to university must provide opportunities for students to go beyond the simple acquisition of facts and figures. That's something as well that Ms. Uh, Lamini was talking about. Uh, the curriculum must offer situations where students use what they know to reason, analyze, create, and evaluate the world around them. Fostering students who are participatory citizens in a modern, uh, ever-changing society requires a, 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 a curriculum, a, a civic curriculum, civic education curriculum uh, that promotes citizenship and civic education its heart. So we then prioritize active citizenship as a regular as a regular uh, part of the curriculum to help students establish a sense of personal responsibility and accountability that forms the foundation to participate in public life as adults. So rather than what we have seen, for example, at, uh, at, at the high school in, in, in Joburg, or the constant destruction of schools, viol uh, the constant uh, vandalism of schools, we move to a situation where we begin to engage in a different way around the issues that affect communities at that level. But this needs to start from the time students are in ECD, they are actually taught about respecting community assets, respecting uh, the value of, 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 of a dialogical engagement, um, uh, uh, respecting democracy and all those key elements that sustain and enable a society. Um, the second practice I would like to insist on uh, is an internal investment in community-based organizations as community enablers. You see the extension of, 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 of uh, uh, the state to, to increase participation needs to occur through CBOs. So community-based organizations can provide critical knowledge to community members and offer them ways to respond to community problems. In many ways, uh, civic organizations have opportunities for their constituents to engage in solution-seeking behavior and community-based organizations facilitate critical civic practices a process that develops critical consciousness and builds the capacity for communities to respond and change to oppressive conditions in their environment. So in, uh, in other words, a critical civic praxis entails the organizational processes promote civic engagement among community members 
and elevates their critical consciousness and capacity for social justice. Community-based organizations also, promote, uh, also provide um, access to community alliances, intergenerational networks, and exposure to political information and ideas about social change in which members collectively respond to community problems. So whether you're talking about uh, uh, youth organizing, whether we're talking about volunteering, whether we're talking about cleaning up our neighborhoods, um, uh, 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 these um, uh, crime-based organizations that exist you know, in, in, in communities, these, all these are examples of intentional efforts to address or to redress issues, but being led by CBO. So there has to be an investment, a deliberate investment in, in, in community-based organizations as community enablers. Emphasize community building schemes. One of the things that I like as well that I've heard here is we seem to be going back to basics. Um, the, 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 the notion of, 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 of self-reliance, uh, the notion of uh, really, really ramping up stock valves, uh, uh, social innovation in communities, uh, local food value chains, all those are examples in which we, can, we, we when we emphasize community building schemes, we, we really look at strengthening um, uh, communities' abilities to withhold, to withstand shocks, uh, communities' ability for resilience, and also communities' abilities to, to, to come back from, from, from disasters or from, 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 from any other types of shocks that could be there. The other element is this, and um, uh, we, we cannot emphasize it enough, invest in applied social research. So while we can have these colloquiums, it would also be important for us to talk about research that has been done, uh, outcomes of that research, interdisciplinary engagements, um, and, also, and also the need to really uh, sustain the relationships between academia, um, the government, the third sector, and how these critical role players can improve the lives and livelihoods of our communities. The advantage as well is when we, 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 we'll be in a position to, 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 to understand when we engage in on-the-ground research, it tells both academics and policymakers what to do and not to do what works and what does not work uh, in ways that build knowledge about uh, current policies, in ways that build knowledge about the need for new interventions, in ways that build knowledge about co-creating strategies with communities. Um, and, 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 and this is important because it then suggests the need for policy shifts and and the need to simplify complex policy regimes in light of the evidence that would have found. The other praxis is, is basically improve government public connections beyond provisioning. And here, when I speak of provisioning, the government, we need to look at the government in a different light, not as a provider, but the government as an enabler for communities to 
really start to begin to engage on issues that directly impact them on the one hand, but also expand like not only livelihood portfolios, but also even engage in economic uh, regimes which were previously excluded from them. So there is need to provide to, 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 to find the proper mechanisms in which we connect with active citizens. Um, because currently uh, the research has proven that citizens often would want authorities and align with legal frameworks in order to be successful in the in, in the public domain but uh, this is becoming a bit of a challenge so we we you know we need to simplify and have a simpler route between uh, that enables the connection between government and and and, um, and its citizens really look at the youth question i will not get much into that. I think Prof. Noyo has rightfully pointed out the situation with needs and how we really need to look at uh, the needs situation. Uh, remember, the youth are the biggest, uh, uh, there's a youth bulge in South Africa. Um, normally, when there's a youth bulge, you're supposed to have a demographic dividend, but uh, at this point, it's not happening. In fact, uh, with what is happening now, there could even be a threat to uh, that demographic to realizing that demographic dividend. So when we talk of taking uh, active citizenship to the next level, um, promoting active citizenship can can be a daunting task, particularly among people who were previously politically disengaged. And I'm glad that almost uh, all the presentations before mine uh, have transcended, have shown that active citizenship should transcend voting or simply fulfilling public obligations, but should instead focus on shaping uh, societal structures through deliberative participation by the state, civil society, and community as partners in local government and development. So this entails, or this rather suggests, mainstreaming democratic participation by re-engaging with citizens in local decision-making processes and governance. Um, so what, what are some of those uh, further challenges, you know, requirements that need to be fulfilled? We need to invest in politically and invest politically and financially in harnessing and enabling agency. Agency at the community level, agency in community structures, agency at the household level um, to really ensure that uh, the, the voice of the communities is heard and we really create a continuum of participation uh, in, which, in which we begin to support and enable uh, agency, uh, explore enabling institutional models that has already, you know, those structures are there. For example, the ward system, street committees, all those things are there. And it's just important for us to really begin to use them appropriately and not politicize them in the manner that they are being used now, but to depoliticize these um, and really support them in terms of ensuring they achieve the intended mandate, build capacity at local level to ensure uh, willingness 
and willingness to collaborate with communities and to link participatory processes to outcomes. Let's, let's all be accountable. Um, that's at the political leadership, uh, at the government level, um, even at the community-based organizations level. Let's go back to communities and tell them we have achieved this, we have not achieved that, because if, if, if we don't go back to the communities, they, 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 they will know. Fortunately, uh, the media, uh, 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 almost all the citizens are, are becoming digital citizens, digital literacy has improved, they will know. But if we build capacity at the local level um, to ensure that things are done, uh, we, 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 we create dialogical spaces for transformation and change, we are at, we are at a better position to look at alternative conflict resolution means beyond uh, uh, digging up roads because we want a school, uh, beyond you know, the destruction of infrastructure, and also put in place partnership strategies that allow stakeholders to inform and be part of the development processes. Anyone who wants to be part of a development initiative, it should be easy for them to do so, but this has to work in such a place, in such a manner that uh, 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 partnership strategies are created, and these partnership strategies uh, emphasize active citizenship and really support active citizenship uh, intentions fully. So, in terms, uh, in my conclusion, I'm just going to take uh, a quotation from the Association of Commonwealth Universities to just re-emphasize the need to uh, break down the ivory tower and really ensure that uh, utilities are not uh, secluded entities, but are there to save humanity and to save the communities in which uh, they, 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 they are residing and in which they are found. Um, so the court, uh, as, as shown there, is the 21st century academic life is no longer pursued in seclusion. Father must champion reason and imagination with the wider society and its concerns. And I think this colloquium as well fulfills that, but uh, we will need to do much more in terms of the practical um, uh, research and the practical um, conversations inter across disciplines, the practical conversations, which also entail even with practitioners in the field, uh, who have to work with our communities, who have to work with uh, uh, the situations that we're mentioning here and to see how best we can come up with um, lasting and tangible solutions. Thank you, Chair, back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Makaiza, for that uh, presentation with practical uh, solutions, tangible solutions, uh, basically on what um, needs to be done, and those being um, grounded on, on 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 the people, active participation of the people. I, li I like it again when you indicate the the drivers of fostering um, active citizenship, where you highlighting here uh, active participation, engagement, uh, responsiveness of the state perhaps, uh, and of, of the people as well, uh, multi-institutional collaborations as being the key drivers that we need to, as we're saying, we forge, uh, we forge forward with regards to uh, the addressing the, the, the apparent social ills. Uh, these are some of the things that we may need to look at. You, you also touched on um, a critical issue 
um, lo looking at the demographic dividends, that given the fact that young people are the majority, what is it that we be we getting out of it? I, I just have one question. I don't know. I will also check from the platform if um, other colleagues have got questions. At some point in time, including here in South Africa, from 1957 up to 1993, where South Africa had um, what, called, what what we refer to as uh, the National Service Training Program, uh, of course, which when we're looking at it now, uh, it was poorly conceptualized because it was mainly on military uh, conscriptions. But we've got other countries that have managed to successfully make use of that, the national uh, what called um, service training programs, um, which is uh, which basically looks at enhancing the civic consciousness of, of the young people by developing the ethics of service and patriotism. Don't you think that perhaps still has got um, a space in our democratic society? Um, thank you, thank you, Chair. Yes, I, I, I think um, in terms of that, it almost speaks to the national service programs. It almost speaks to the Masupatela, uh, you know, the Masupatela youth program, and um, it does have relevance. We, you know, we don't have to make it uh, compulsory or like a conscription, but we can look at alternative models, uh, which. Um, you know, or adaptations of it. Uh, either we do it upon completion of high school, or we look at the underpinnings of civicness that we desire, uh, you know, within the South African space. And we start that already from ECG. That would be the long-term intervention for me um, in terms of how we would look at it in, in that sense. Um, it's critical that we look at from what happens at ECD all the way up to university with service learning, with all those other uh, uh, values we try to to to, 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 um, uh, to embed in, 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 in our teaching, uh, that we, 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 we go beyond or we take in elements of, of, of this. But uh, I agree with you, it's important to have it. Um, and, and whoever uh, thought of the Masopatela program, they were on to something. It's unfortunate that uh, uh, it is where it is now, but uh, we should really look at refining. Oh, thank you very much for that. And I like the fact that you also tied it to the Masopatela because it really speaks to that, trying to revive it in, in, in that way, such that the young people are enhanced in that civic consciousness. And also that aspect of um, patriotism to the country um, is quite important. I see Dr. Uh, Natane, um, please come through, Dr. Natane. Um, thank you, Program di Director, and thank you, uh, Dr. Magaiza, for uh, your presentation. I think you are proposing very tangible, uh, practical um, responses, and 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 I particularly like the praxis that you are proposing, um, especially around uh, applied social research. So I want to pose a question, and I would like. Um, uh, the DDG, I would like um, also Prof Twala and yourself to respond to this question. So um, I uh, work at an institution where from health sciences, from law, from social sciences, we have rich research and data that can turn the lives of our communities around. 
Um, but the challenge is around funding on how um, this knowledge that we have, these findings from our research that we're sitting with, we've reported and we've packed it nicely at the shelves of our libraries, are solutions to our communities. But due to university management that, you know, does not prioritize um, community intervention, we of course prioritize verbally, but um, publication and publication and publication is more valued, you know. Um, what do we do? Uh, because students or, or academics are sitting, we're sitting with even our research and our student research that are providing solutions to communities, to changing lives of communities. But we, because of lack of funding, because of also the political will and the time to take off and say, look, I, did uh, my research on father absence. And this is a model that I've developed on how communities can deal with issues of father absence. But because of time and money, resources, political will with university management, that information continues to occupy the shelves of our libraries. How can we creatively as government, uh, especially a department of social development and even other departments, and how can universities intentionally engage in that so that we apply uh, the findings and we come up with interventions to change our communities? Thank you. Thank, thank you. Um, can, I, can I ask Prof Tuala to, to respond first? Um, can we maybe, okay, no, that's fine. Cause I didn't want to put him on the spot, but um, the Prof Tuala, are you, are you in a position to respond now? Uh, Chairperson, it's it's a million dollar question that one, and I I understand why Dr. Gray is is putting it to to my desk, uh, because uh, I'm also the, the chairperson of the research committee here uh, uh, in the faculty, and uh, the whole question it is not the question of academic or political will that we don't want to fast track the process, but it is more of the financial side to it. Uh, perhaps if I may suggest that the investors that are here can come together and come up with a proposal whereby we'll table to the Department of Social Development, we table to, to the National Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences, we, we table it to Codesria, and maybe we can get something to fast track the process. I agree with Dr. Nata that uh, we've got a lot of information and data bank, but which is not cascaded down to our communities and which is also gathering dust. And at the end, the very same data that we have uh, accumulated over years will be redundant and it will also going to be uh, outdated and we need to move faster. But as to how do we go uh, that process, we needed to, to sit it down perhaps and make a proposal after this colloquium. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Prof.
thank you very much for that response. Um, and again, what are the suggestions that you're putting um, here? Um, because it is an important question that can't be ignored. It needs to be taken forward and made sure that we make something uh, out of this um, research and the findings that we that already, you know, practitioners in social sciences, they're engaged in and they make findings uh, out of their research, but nothing then gets done out of them. Uh, they just get, um, you, you know, shelved in, 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 in libraries. Uh, Dr. Makaiza, do, do you still want to add? Um, no, no, Chair. I think, uh, Prof. Twala, I, I request for um, a, a, a submission. Captures that. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. And I see Chance there saying, indeed, we need to consolidate these practical suggestions and interventions, plus those suggestions uh, by other presenters um, to take South Africa forward. Thank you very much, um, Chance. There. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Natane, is that still the old hand or is the new one? Okay, sorry, that's the legacy hand. Um, is uh, DGG available to also respond or anyone from um, the office of the minister? Okay, um, the DGG is around. Um, yes, 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 I, 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 I am here, uh, uh, Chief, uh, and thanks for, uh, so much for the question. I was just trying yes, to find to, to raise my hand. I think the... Our participation even in this colloquium is uh, a clear indication of our commitment as a government uh, to work with uh, partners, uh, to work with uh, academic institutions, uh, especially as we try and seek uh, solutions. Uh, because we appreciate that probably from the third administration, government started putting much more emphasis um, uh, on the outcome approach. And once you adopt the outcome approach, it means you need to have evidence so that you'll be able to use it as we develop policies and improve uh, 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 the impact and the difference that you are making towards improving the quality of lives of people. And I think it is for that reason that departments such as ours as well, uh, we've been believing so much on the evidence base uh, policy making as well as uh, also using evidence uh, for decision making. Uh, we have very institutionalized M&E units within the department. And I think as government as well, uh, by establishing that DPME, it was part of that appreciation on how evidence is, is, is required. So we continue to seek solutions and we engage with various uh, academics. Uh, if you look at um, uh, uh, the interventions uh, in terms of the rapid response that government came up with, especially in the advent of COVID-19, uh, uh, with some of the measures uh, that we put in place, including uh, social relief of distress, the traffic, and so forth, uh, uh, we continue to engage with government. Uh, the overwhelming evidence is there, demonstrating the impact that is positive for the traffic, for example, is the result of us working closer with some of these institutions, your needs, crime, and so forth. And we continue to work with quite a, a, a number of them, even in this very same department, social development, we've got strategic partnership with various uh, institutions of higher learning, including the Zonosquaya uh, Center as well. So we, we are open. And of course, we've got a unit, uh, uh, even a branch in the department called Community Development, which I want to refer uh, my sister, Makali Bula, to let's, let's engage, uh, including with that particular unit, because you see, our stories of social development is always seen and looked through 
by the eye of social grant. So we are always seen as, as a social grant. So the, the our ability to reposition ourselves post the establishment of SASA with focusing much more on, 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 on community development so that we are able to build these resilient uh, communities is still a space that uh, requires quite a lot of work and we'll be able to uh, benefit largely uh, from working with uh, 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 people of imminent uh, uh, information and knowledge in these particular spaces and we are open of course for engagement thank you so much thank you very much um with that um, contribution and i i think i also like the way in which you responded to it indicating that um the department of social development goes beyond grants and uh, we the that department is known um, mainly by many, particularly looking at our people at the grassroots, um, they understand it as that uh, department that deals with grants. Um, and sometimes even people other than, um, you know, the, the poor or the, the general public, even practitioners within the, the Department of Social Development, sometimes they don't even understand why the department's name was changed from its previous name to what it is today to be social development. Their conceptualization of social de development um, is sometimes found wanting. So, um, Dr. Natani, may I call you again? Um, are you satisfied with the responses that you, you, we, we got so far? Yes, I'm happy, sir. Thank you very Thanks. much. Colleagues, thank you very much. Um, now that we've uh, we've had those engagements, we now need to move forward um, in, in, in relation to our program. Um, we've heard from Dr. Gray Kaiser. Thank you very much, Dr. Gray Kaiser, for that presentation. It's highly appreciated. And we know that after this, we're still going to meet and ensure that we collect all these um, proposals um, so, so that we make something out of them. Uh, now we're moving on to Dr. Tabi Samatsia from UNIVEN. Uh, she's also on the issue of active citizenry. Um, so um, some of the issues that have been touched might also be, um, be touched again on this presentation, but um, this, uh, there are quite a lot of things that need to be done in as far as active citizenry is concerned. Therefore, allow me to invite Dr. Tabi Samatsia from UNIVEN colleagues. Um, the Honorable Minister, Ms. Lindiwe Zulu in absentia, DDG Tabani Butelezi and the ministerial team, um, esteemed academics and other guests, um, all protocol observed. Um, colleagues, my name is um, Tabisa Matea from the University of Venda. Um, allow me to share my screen. Oh. Okay, sure. <clears throat> okay, um, you know, Dr. Dr. Magaiza said it's nice to present last because uh, people would have covered everything. But then again, I feel it's a disadvantage to present last because people would have taken everything that you wanted to say. Um, my topic for today is uh, putting out fires of violence. Um, social work fostering active uh, citizenry. Um, um, I, I'm looking at this um, and um, uh, trying to um, put forward the role of social work in making sure that we are living in a safe um, environment and in a, in a safe um, um, uh, communities. 
Um, the <coughs> outline of my presentation, um, my, the outline of my presentation, it would be an, an introduction. Um, uh, what is active citizenry? Active citizenry in South Africa and putting out those fires. That means finding solutions uh, from a social work perspective. And then I will conclude. Um, I think, um, um, you know, violence has, has become a common occurrence in South Africa. We have seen in the past a, a couple of weeks or a past month, how violence um, is, has become a, a distraction and a, a, a very a, a bitter um, occurrence in our country. And uh, unlike during apartheid era, when where mostly violence was more about politics, um, the current violence in, in the democratic era is more uh, is multidimensional. Um, therefore, and and uh, as you would have observed uh, in the recent uh, violent incidents it showed that, you know, uh, relying only on security approaches um, to curb violence is not effective at all. Um, thus, and, and it became very clear that we, as, as this violence is uh, multidimensional, it became very clear that we also need multidimensional approaches to deal with it. Um, hence, uh, um, I believe that active citizenry can, can contribute immensely in um, preventing or, or even curbing violence in our country. So um, when we look at um, what now is active citizenry, we're looking at um, as just one important element uh, that um, creates, that contributes towards healthy societies. And this has to do with local people taking a stand, uh, people coming together uh, to solve the problem. Uh, people coming together to say, you know what, not in my watch, you know, people who would also take responsibility you know, understanding the fact that we have very little resources. So destroying our resources is not going to help us in any way. So um, we, we, we look at active citizenry as, you know, um, those citizens who, are, who act as, as change agents to, to create um, quality, better quality of life for everyone in the communities. And um, um, the, the, the good thing about uh, our democracy is that it, um, it acknowledges the, the importance uh, and the relevance of active citizenry. And you would agree with me when we look at the next slide, we're looking at active citizenry in South Africa. And um, this is the key to our constitution, you know, um, our constitution is one of the best in the world. Um, it encourages involvement of communities. It, it encourages them to, uh, to um, participate in matters that affect them. 
that is in the local government. It doesn't end there. It, it, it makes citizen uh, part, uh, participation very central, you know, to local governance. You, um, it, it, it creates that opportunity for citizens to participate in the local government. And it, it doesn't end in the local government. It also extends this, it extends it to, to legislation. It, it, it makes that provision for participation of citizens in the proceedings of the legislation. And again, when we look at um, active, active citizenry in our uh, country, it is key to the National Development Plan 2020, uh, 2030, because um, uh, the National Development Plan gives power to citizens. You know, it's saying to citizens, you have a responsibility to make the government account for, for any action. And I, I quite, quite like um, and um, what is currently happening with um, uh, whatever the outcome will be, but with the Sondo uh, um, Commission, because now it's in a way um, trying to say to us, um, here we are as government and whoever else who's playing a role in government, um, trying to account to, to whatever actions that were taken in the past and, and and whatever is happening now in the country. And now if we are talking, um, if we are looking at social work as, um, as playing a very crucial role in fostering active citizenry, we cannot talk, uh, we cannot um, exclude social development. Hence I would say um, active citizenry is also key to social development. Because if you look at the themes of social development, I would uh, um, talk in particular of democracy and participation. It, this theme uh, places emphasis on the importance of um, uh, participation of uh, citizens to address their issues. It, 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 it looks at the um, um, citizens not as, you know, passive recipients, which I think, you know, um, I, I think somehow uh, Professor Noyo mentioned the issue of, um, you know, doing something for, for citizens to be self-reliant. And I know uh, maybe Dr. Antania may be a bit, uh, may oppose a bit of what um, I, I want to say that, you know, for, for, for the, the social assistance, the grants, they are helping a lot of our people. But couldn't we or shouldn't we do something for people not to receive grants sitting and maybe do, I'm thinking when I was young in the former CISCI, we had something called honors God and we did not understand then what these people were doing. Um, they, you'd find them all over the place, just like what is happening with uh, EPWP. Um, having people, giving people something to do and they earn an, a, a salary or an income 
so that they, um, you know, to, to, to deal with poverty, to address with issues of poverty. And so um, we don't want them to just rely on more of um, getting handouts from government, but we want them to feel that whatever that they are getting uh, from government, it's because they partly worked for it. And um, so, 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 so it, is, it is important that uh, we um, kind of um, influence or, or facilitate um, the issue of participation of our um, communities. Um, to you know, to bring change to their own lives, to um, kind of um, um, improve the, the the quality of life, right? Um, now, looking, having said that, we we now look at okay, well, then you are saying all this. How do we then, as social workers, fit into the equation? It's important that we put up those fires because I feel that social work is well placed to promote active citizenship. I see social work as a, a double-edged sword in terms of status and in terms of practice. Um, social workers remember they are also citizens. And I'm sure they want to see a, a development in their communities. And then again, these are practitioners. Practitioners who are expected or who are required to, to help bring change in, 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 the, um, in their communities where they work, where they practice. So they are kind of wearing two caps, uh, uh, different colors, but same goal. Now, we cannot talk social work and not think of any theory that they can draw strength from or uh, 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 that can guide their practice. And um, I looked at quite a number of theories and I think there are quite a number of theories that are relevant to, to the issue of active citizenry. But um, looking at um, uh, the recent incident of violence, I chose a strengths-based perspective because with a strengths-based perspective, we, we, it, it, it focuses on not uh, um, 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 highlighting the problems and the weaknesses rather focus on, on the strengths that the community has. And, and I think you would agree with me, no matter how bad the situation is, there would always be that little light or that little uh, a piece of hope that makes people um, or that reminds people that there's, there's hope, there's, there's that light at the end of the tunnel. And I would like to specifically look at what happened recently. Um, uh, during the, the, this looting, violent looting spree, there were communities, you know, 
that uh, showed an, an, or um, a displayed an active citizenship. Communities that um, showed us that there are still uh, good people out there. Look, for instance, at the community of Pimvi. They, they took a stand and um, they decided, no, no one is going to loot or destroy Maponyamua. And as social workers, we can capitalize on that. We can capitalize on that when we are trying to uh, um, uh, promote active citizenship. We, 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 we use such people and, 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 and mobilize our communities. And, we, um, and, and, and that is a very nice starting point. Here you are, you having people who are willing to, you know, to bring change into their communities. And um, um, uh, there, there are also other communities like the Archridgeville communities, social movement communities. And so um, that is why they, from, from that point, we look at community mobilization. We're looking at all those stakeholders who, who are influential, who are, who, who are very powerful, who can, you know, help us steer the community towards the right direction. I remember when I was seeing, I think second day when, I, when um, uh, this, um, the looting uh, was taking place, um, I said to, 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 my, to my husband, you know, if taxi drivers were to get involved in all this and, and uh, this, this, this looting would stop. And it was like God uh, um, answered my prayers because in other provinces, and in, in those areas where the looting didn't take place, taxi drivers were involved, traditional leaders were involved. Those are very uh, um, um, important stakeholders that uh, social workers can bring together to make sure that um, um, we curb violence in, in, in our communities. And, and as I've mentioned, um, the, the, the issue of active citizenship as key to our constitution and a national development plan and also a, a social development. Um, there is a challenge. People are not active because there's a lack of opportunities maybe for them to participate. Uh, people lack information, they are given power, but they do not know, they do not have skills, and uh, they do not have knowledge uh, to use the power that they are given. So um, hence, uh, the issue of community education is important. Social workers have to educate people um, about, you know, violence. Um, the, the consequences of violence. And, and this has to extend beyond the fact that they are talking violence and the consequences. And, and, and we, we, violence has consequences on our economy. Hence then we'll have so many people who are poor, so many people who are uh, uh, unemployed in, in, in our country. It's because now, um, for instance, social workers can use the recent incidents 
that the fact that there was looting, violent uh, looting in the country, then there's a, a ch challenge. The, there won't be any investors uh, interested to invest in South Africa because they are afraid their businesses would be um, um, uh, destroyed. And, and then their money would just go with the, um, with the storm. Um, they, so that, so that um, the, the citizens understand that whatever that they do, it, it doesn't only affect um, people that they think they, they are fighting with, but it affects them in the long run. And, you know, um, communities tend to detach when they feel that they are not uh, benefiting from, um, from government or from, 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 from community resources. So they tend to detach. To detach. And uh, Ms. Nomte Botlamini mentioned the fact that, you know, when um, people are angry with the municipality, then they will ban the stadium that the municipality built because they do not take that ownership. So it's important that they are, they are equipped with enough skills to know how to fight, how to fight, not destroy, but fight in a very, um, in a way that will make a government and whoever is in power to listen and act positively. And um, I think it was uh, 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 Dr. Magaiza who spoke of moral uh, degeneration. You know, there's moral decay in our country. Um, uh, it, it, there's so many things attributed to this uh, moral decay. Um, the fact that we are now, we have, so, we have become so self-centered, we have become so individualistic, you know, unlike before when we had um, um, extended families and, and, and strong social support, now we have become, you know, we, the focus is mostly on, you know, this family, the father, the mother and the children. And, and we, with everything that um, people are exposed to, the, the media, the TV and everything. So, so, so there's, there's just too much moral decay. People do not see, they cannot differentiate between what is right and, 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 and what is wrong. And in most cases, we are easily influenced uh, to follow the wrong path instead of following the good path. So it's important that we we, 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 we look at moral regeneration, you know, we revitalize the um, moral ethics. We, um, I, I think some, um, one of the presenters spoke of, you know, starting from the education. I remember during my time as a, as a learner in primary schools and, and high schools, we, we had sports. Um, that is not there. We had, it, 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 if it's there, it's very limited. And our kids do not really see anything important with participating in, in sport. And the families are, um, are dysfunctional. 
you know, uh, parents are busy with their problems, young people are not supervised, they are not getting proper guidance. So, so, so it is important that social workers look at, uh, at moral uh, regeneration. It doesn't end there. There are many other things that we should do as social workers. Uh, uh, Dr. Magaiza spoke about youth. Our youth, um, it's, it's a really uh, disheartening. Our youth is frustrated. Educated or not educated is the same. And I think that is why um, some young people do not see a need to be educated. You are educated, you are not educated, your life is just is, is miserable, it's just the same. So we need to do something with our youth. We need to create uh, opportunities for our youth to participate. We need to keep our youth busy. Um, around um, 2012, I think, a Department of Social Development was busy with young people in, in the Northwest province where um, young people would come up with business plans and the department would fund them. Maybe they would um, um, establish Chisanyama, um, um, what you call, um, 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 Kawashis and stuff like that. So that the young people are, are kept busy. And, and I think Dotantane spoke of social entrepreneurship. That is, that is very important. And, 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 and we, we, we kind of um, encourage our youth to get involved in social entrepreneurship. And it doesn't end there. We also you know, encourage our youth to, to, to be volunteers. We encourage volunteerism. And, 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 and I think we, we've had um, a, a challenge with volunteerism in our country because people did not understand uh, uh, the motive be beyond a volunteerism. People saw volunteerism as, um, as, a, uh, as a way to get through employment. Right, so 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 it is important that we encourage them to um, to um, to be involved in volunteerism, but not forget to educate them about what volunteerism is and the importance of volunteerism. And and again, they, they, we need to enhance social support. You know, research shows that. Um, Social support is a, a potential um, resource for self-control. You know, um, when, when we have social uh, support, all the problems that we are in, experiencing tend to be minimized. And, 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 and again, the fact that we have uh, social support, um, plays a role in, the, in my next point, strengthening our families. You know, our families are disintegrated. Our families are broken. Our families are dysfunctional. And, and now it makes it, a, 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 this, this is a, a kind of um, um, an, a, a 
sort of a, a, a very expensive breeding of um, we, we tr we're growing, we, we, we're kind of raising our children to believe that, you know what, um, when you are adults, you just have to be disintegrated, you just have to be dysfunctional and stuff like that. So it is important that we, we come up with ways of strengthening our families, have all those um, uh, self-help groups in the families for people who are not uh, you're in the communities for people who are not working you know we we we, we motivate or we encourage them to take part in those uh, self-help groups and 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 then again when you look at social development it talks of partnership partnership is just important um i think professor noyo spoke of because this thing is multidimensional, um, we, 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 we acknowledge that as social workers, we cannot do it alone. Hence, it's important that we promote so, uh, partnerships. We, we work with different organizations to, um, to curb violence or to, to even, in fact, even before we get there, we need to, to strengthen the, the prevention strategies. And um, I, I've spoke about the issue of supporting self-help groups. And, 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 and again, it's, it, it's important that we, we develop and, and implement those uh, um, evidence-based programs to deal um, with uh, several issues in our communities. Um, Professor Noyo spoke of a, a generational trauma. And I, I want to talk of generational anger. People are angry. This is attributed to, to you know, politics. Um, the fact that, um, you know, politicians would come to the uh, communities, promise people, um, you know, having an ad should they vote uh, for them. But the moment they are voted for, they forget their promises. You know, those empty promises makes people very angry. They, 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 they make people to, to um, kind of uh, despise uh, politicians, despise government. So we need to come up with ways of um, helping our communities to channel anger to a more productive, uh, um, way to a more developmental way. I mean, for instance, I was reading not so long ago, um, somewhere in Kailicha, um, a, a new informal settlement in Kailicha. This community was frustrated. They didn't have water, they didn't have um, electricity, but the community decided to get together. They decided to do things for themselves, you know. They, they decided to be self-reliant. Um, plumbers got together and they um, dug um, or they connected to, to Usua, a system. The electricians got together and they um, uh, got electricity somewhere and they electrified the area. And what did communities do, community members do? They each contributed a certain amount so that um, um, electric um, 
wires and everything that is required for connection, for water, for, for, uh, for sewer system, and for electricity is bought. Now the community has everything and they are not complaining anymore. So we need to, 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 to have those programs where we'll help um, our communities to channel whatever it is their dis dissatisfaction to, to being developmental. And, and in conclusion then, I would say, you know, it's when looking at um, a theme, a social development theme, the micro and, and, and macro divide, it's important that we, we revitalize community work. Um, I feel, um, and my observations um, are that um, it seems as the focus is more on casework. There are other uh, methods of intervention in social work are not um, um, dominating. And um, so we need to, to revitalize community work. And, 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 and a bit of group work because we, we have self-help self groups that we need to help initiate, self-help groups that we have to support as social workers. And then again, it's important that um, we can talk of uh, 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 trying to revive community work and everything. But if social workers are not cap capacitated, then we are just you know, wasting our energy. So it's important that we capacitate our uh, social workers, not only um, in, in terms of skills on how to deal with communities. Social workers have all these uh, um, uh, pieces of legislation and, and, and uh, um, policies, but they don't have an understanding. And, and remember that they also have to mobilize communities to participate in, 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 in community, in, in, in policy development, but they are not capacitated because they also lack the understanding. So it's important that we, we kind of capacitate them. And it, it's also important that we um, enhance um, or promote communication. Communication is important communication within the community, communication between the community and government. So both approaches, bottom up and top down approaches are, are important, especially the top down approach, because, you know, we with the issue of um, um, participation being the, the main thing, um, it is important for for, for top-down approach where people would be provided with the relevant information on how to go about a, 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 a participating in whatever that they have to participate. And then again, when we look at, at, at the bottom up, you know, um, someone spoke of um, uh, the white elephants. I'm not sure whether it was a Professor Twala uh, the white elephants, you know, gone are the days where a government would, uh, or, or whoever, the developers would come to the uh, community and look at what they think needs should be done. 
um, when we talk of bottom-up approach, it's more of we're saying, remember, we live in this community. We are experts uh, on whatever issue it is in, 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 it's, um, is happening in the community or whatever issue that is present in the community. Therefore, you need to hear from us what it is that we need. You don't come and impose your, um, your, your principles or your values to us. Um, so, so, so this is also very important. And, and then um, finally, you know, fostering that meaningful participation of communities is also very, very, very important that social workers should always be on the lookout for opportunities for uh, um, um, communities to participate in whatever that will bring development, that will improve the quality of life. And, and so that they are, you know, at the end of the day, we have healthy and happy communities. Um, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Matsaya. Highly appreciated. Um, you, you, you did well and um, you raised quite a, quite a lot of um, um, tangible, again, tangible um, solutions. Um, and I, I liked the fact that I saw that even uh, comments from Aisha, Dr. Makaiza, and other colleagues, they were indicating that it seems, there seems to be a golden thread amongst all presenters, um, that of ensuring that we go to the communities, make use of the, the asset-based community development approach. Uh, earlier on, there was a talk of uh, making use of the indigenous knowledge systems um, and um, Afrocentric kind of approach in dealing with the, 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 the ills that are plaguing our society. We highly appreciate that. Um, so let me entertain questions, uh, Dr. and see if there will be any questions or comments coming from the uh, from the attendees here. Okay, so I do not see hands, but I will go. I'll quickly go to to the chat and highlight what has been said. I see Aisha saying thank you for the touch, uh, for touching on the topic of social work um, workforce, um, and of course, it is not only a matter of social work capacitation; it is also a matter of increasing the the, the workforce as well. Uh, and earlier on, she was indicating that perhaps um, because if you look at looking at the students of community development and those of um, social work, um, talking about the skills, uh, the the strengths perspective, we're talking about. Um, ABCD approaches, they are taught th that, um, and she's saying perhaps instead of only teaching them, we now need to focus on more on implementation. Are we able, after they've been taught, are they able to implement? Because these are the same social workers who go out to the field uh, and get employed by either government or the private and so forth and so on. But are they able to put this into practice? If not, what are the impediments in that? Doctor, do you foresee any impediments in, in as far as that is concerned? Um, come again, uh, 
No, we, we, the question is basically based on, on, on what you are advancing, looking at the ABCD approach, asset-based, uh, the strengths perspective. We are saying these social workers, these community development workers, once they are, they are employed either by government or the private sector or whoever employs them, we, we find a situation that they are, they are struggling to implement this, even when it comes to uh, those who are employed by the municipality, you know, the development of the ITPs, the community, even the, 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 the kind of consultations that are that that happen is what in community development they refer to as tokenism. You know, of course, people will call would be called to a community hall, uh, and you realize that sometimes most of the things that are said by the community do not make it make their way into the ITP finally. So we're saying, what could be the impediments in as far as these approaches are concerned? Because at the end of the day, we need to be um, be as, as practical as possible. And if there are these challenges, what are those challenges, and how best can we address them? You know, I, I, I think um, the reason I said we need to capacitate social workers um, is that social workers who seem to be fumbling and who seem not to know um, what they are doing um, lead to uh, or result in uh, the community losing trust in their abilities, losing trust uh, um, or on, on government or whoever the employer is. And, 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 and this, this, I think, is one of the contributing factors to the challenges that we are experiencing, the issue of, 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 of violence and, and stuff like that. And um, if our um, social workers were able to, you know, to apply that asset-based approach in the communities, but now because we have, I think um, um, Aisha Abrams mentioning the issue of workforce, I think our social workers are also overstretched. You know, um, so 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 it's important that government looks into more you know, uh, increasing um, uh, our workforce so that we can um, deal with whatever challenges uh, that we, we are experiencing. Um, Okay. Because as long as, as long as we have uh, people who are thumbsucking, who seem not to know what they are doing, then the community lose trust, and then community doesn't want to work with us anymore. You are right. You are right, Doctor. And um, it is uh, that is one of the reasons, basically, why you find there's so so much distrust between you know the practitioners and the community. And at the, at the end of the day, then the community tends to take issues into their into their own hands. Um, and the destruction of property is exactly as a result uh, of the fact that they they know that nobody is going to hear them if they were to engage amicably without without any destruction. So because now they tried these people who are who are employed by government or they've engaged with um, whoever, but they realize that there seems to be no response and then some of them end up uh, embarking on, 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 on violence. But of course, the, earlier on, the minister posed a question to say, but don't you think that perhaps um, these um, violences at times, these incidences of violence, at times they're just a decoy to something that is greater. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe somebody from the platform could also be in a position to answer that. Is this just a decoy? Or is, is, it's not really a decoy, it's a way of communicating exactly the, the grievances of the communities as they manifest in the community. So thank you very much, uh, Doctor, for that presentation. And of course, uh, as indicated, all the proposals that are put forward will be collected later on. Thank Can you.
You're welcome, Doctor. Can we then move on, colleagues? Um, uh, if, you, if, you, if you look at your, your watches, it's now the six minutes past two. Um, we are slightly behind um, behind time, but in any case, we trust that we'll manage to finish right on time. Uh, now we've got um, earlier on. You'll have had me talking about um, the, the rights that are provisioned uh, in the in the Constitution of the Republic for people to demonstrate, to pick here, to submit petitions and whatnot. Um, but does it end there? It is this question that now we want to answer with um, Dr. Mbazema Matewani from UNISA, where he's making a presentation on the notion of human rights with responsibilities. Um, Dr. Mbazema, uh, can you please take this opportunity, please? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chair. Um, I'm a little bit technologically challenged when it comes to Zoom. Uh, I'm very used to Teams. Um, I'm going to, I, I want to share my screen. I'm not sure, I don't see the option. I'm sure uh, you need to allocate me the authority to share. I don't know, I'm not seeing the option. If anyone can assist, please. Uh, yeah, I, I actually share my. Screen. I don't. I don't know what happened, but I actually gave it to everybody. So everybody was. Uh, I don't know at the bottom there. Don't you see the button that says uh, share? I ensured that everybody who comes in will, will have that oh, opportunity no, no, to share. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I have it. I have it. Thank you very much. Oh. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, the. Honorable Minister of Social Development uh, in absentia, the ministerial team led by Ubaba Ubutelezi, uh, Prof Noyo, and um, the uh, members of the executive management of UFS present with us today. Um, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me take this opportunity to thank the organizer for this wonderful colloquium and the vibrant um, um, uh, discussions and debates that are taking place. It is indeed um, enriching and I hope as the minister alluded that uh, this will be taken forward and broadened so that uh, it also touches the grassroots. Let me also acknowledge my friend from the old days at Varsity, um, comrade Papi Nkoli, salute my chief uh, from the minister's office. Um, thank you, colleagues. Uh, I share the sentiments of my colleagues, uh, you know, lamenting on presenting light and all that. So um, unfortunately there, there must be some sequence of sorts and uh, some will be first, some will be last. Colleagues, uh, I'm, uh, as the chair indicated, I will be talking about uh, rights and responsibilities. My name is Mbazi uh, Mamatebane, I'm from UNISA. I teach uh, community work there and community work is, you know, my passion and um, Although I'll not, I'll not talk directly about community work, but uh, I think what I'm going to talk about uh, hinges a lot on community work. By way of introduction, uh, 
you know, what I'm going to present forms part of uh, what we're all doing here today, interrogating the culture of uh, endemic violence accompanying protests in, in South Africa. Uh, I, I, I listened uh, to my colleagues who presented before. They've touched on very important aspects um, surrounding this issue. Um, I'm going to opt to take a little bit uh, divergent, maybe controversial positionality on uh, the whole uh, debate. Um, I will, uh, you know, as allocated, talk about rights and responsibilities, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, as it is quite, um, you know, a, fa a familiar territory. I think most of us, uh, you know, uh, uh, sitting here today are familiar with the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So I'm not going to bore you with going through the motions, but I'll give a, a, an overview, just a brief overview of uh, uh, these rights and um, responsibilities as enshrined in our Constitution and a wonderful Bill of Rights. I'll then, um, you know, talk about the role of social work, because I'm coming from a social work, although, you know, within the broader space of social sciences, I will uh, want to come from the social work perspective. But of course, interdisciplinary collaboration is key, and it will be one of the things that I will um, argue uh, needs to be strengthened going forward. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm speaking from the um, um, vantage point of being a, an academic uh, uh, in social work and a social worker in art. Uh, I'm going to argue, colleagues, uh, that um, all these problems and issues that we're talking about um, will be best addressed if one very important um, issue is addressed, and that's social justice. Colleagues have touched on uh, 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 Dr. Natani specifically on issues of um, you know, structural uh, things that need to be changed and all those things. So uh, that forms part of that argument to say there's fundamentally uh, a problem with the structure of the economy, the, the, the political ideology um, uh, uh, that we are following uh, although it has been there for many years, the prevalence of social ills and problems uh, of uh, unemployment, poverty, and inequality attest to the fact that uh, all these uh, systems are a resounding failure. And I think uh, we need to come to that realization and acknowledge that uh, these systems have failed and we need to look for alternatives. And of course, there are alternatives. So in my conclusion, I will indicate that indeed social justice should precede uh, rights and responsibilities as I will talk about them for meaningful and impactful social transformation to occur. And all of the other things, uh, nice things that we want to see happening. So, um, whilst um, it is important to acknowledge the, the, the significance of rights and responsibilities of citizens in a, in a democratic state. It is equally vital that we acknowledge, uh, colleagues, that um, such 
uh, would be rendered inoperable in the absence of social justice. What do we mean by social justice? Put simply, social justice um, means addressing the wrongs that were done in the past, addressing issues of uh, deprivation, issues of landlessness in our context, issues of economic exclusion. We need to address those because we were not born uh, 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 into injustices. These injustices are man-made and they can be corrected. Uh, I do not need to go into the history of injustices that um, our country has gone through and Africa as a whole. Uh, we're all aware of the um, historical past of coloniality and apartheid, the violence that came with that. In fact, in the um, uh, document that was presented in preparation for this colloquium, uh, there was a nice summary of um, what happened, which gave birth to many of the social ills that we are seeing today. And therefore, solutions lies right there, colleagues. We need to go back to um, the beginning where it all started. Uh, because pre-colonial era, our people were able to meet their needs using means developed by themselves, with themselves in mind, and in their best interest. But there came a time when all those were destroyed. Their knowledge systems completely destroyed, and their uh, livelihoods disrupted. I will be using uh, Lorenz 2016's critical analysis of neoliberalism as um, you know, uh, you know, the basis of uh, the arguments that I will advance. Lorenz argues that uh, neoliberal policies not only privatize formerly public services, but also focus one-sidedly on the discourse of individual autonomy and responsibility. I've highlighted that last part of um, the prominence of individual autonomy and responsibility that we are also trapped in that discourse today, where we focusing so much on um, individual autonomy and responsibility while overlooking the state at which these people are found. One of the um, uh, colleague in the audience, I think it's Geneva, uh, asked a question about the sense of helplessness that characterize the lived realities of our people. The sense of hopelessness that, what do we expect out of that? If people wake, wake up into misery, into poverty, into, um, you know, almost inability to meet every basic needs. What can we expect from that situation? 
So I will be departing from this point that says we need to interrogate critically the role of uh, the capitalist neoliberal system of modernity um, and look for opportunities of finding good alternatives that will deliver better results for our people. I know this is one area that uh, many of us would rather live alone and not venture into, but it's something that will haunt us forever for as long as we continue, you know, in this um, fashion that we are continuing uh, with capitalism and neoliberalism. I argue that is the root cause of the problems that we are seeing today, including the violence outbursts that we see, the, 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 the intergenerational anger and trauma that colleagues alluded to comes from there. We need to deliver real social justice to our people so that they can take full control of their lives. Only then will the rights that we um, 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 captured so nicely in our constitution and the Bill of Rights be realized. We are in a democratic dispensation for more than 26 years. We have a progressive constitution, a Bill of Rights, which is the envy of many nations. But despite that, colleagues, we see this continued erosion of the same rights and freedoms through this act of endemic violence that have characterized the present day politics. So that is the condition of the present colleagues that we need to grapple with and find lasting solutions to. We are indeed concerned about the implications of this sad situation on future generations. What this does to young people growing up in that sense of helplessness, growing up witnessing scenes of violence and destruction of property. Therefore, the question that I, I would rather pose is whether human rights form part of a panacea for these social ills. The rights that we have as nicely and eloquently captured in our constitution, the Bill of Rights have proven um, colleagues over the years, not adequate in ensuring that our people are able to self-actualize, are able to uh, retain their dignity as human beings and lead productive lives. Of course, there are 
few who are able to do that, as it would be found in any capitalist liberal society anywhere else. So this is not to say that human rights are not as important. Of course, human rights are important, but I want to, to uh, submit colleagues that uh, the discourse on human rights is one of the key characteristics of capitalist liberal societies. And such a discourse of human rights tend to focus on individual autonomy and responsibility. As Jennifer indicated, what autonomy and responsibility can you expect from a man out there in Johannesburg without a job, without a proper housing, without any form of security, with uh, children that they must look after. Therefore, unless we are able to come up with progressive ways of addressing the condition of the man, human rights and the responsibilities that come with them become meaningless. There isn't much that the poor man can appreciate from such human rights, no matter, you know, the good intentions that the human rights come with. However, let me take the time to run through uh, our human rights as enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh, before I return to the arguments from a social work uh, perspective on what needs to be done going forward. We are all aware that um, human rights are for everyone, they are basic. We have them from birth. It's not a privilege, it's not end, it's something that um, we all have and cannot be taken away. But of course, there are limits because those have to coexist with the rights of others. And as much as we have rights, we do not have rights to violate other people's rights. And of course, rights come with responsibilities because we all have rights. So incidences that we witnessed recently, it's just one example of how um, if not properly managed, one person's right may end up limiting the right of another or violating the right of another. Therefore, um, there needs to be systems and measures in place to ensure that uh, these rights are protected and uh, guarded. 
course, I've spoken about the Bill of Rights and uh, the many rights that are covered there, and they are uh, um, discussed in details in the Constitution in the various chapters. So I'm, I will not go through the different sections. But of course, the Constitution is the highest and the supreme law of the country. And um, because it is our highest law, there's no any other law that can contradict or that is allowed to contradict the Constitution. So how are these um, uh, rights protected? Um, there are instruments internationally and continentally that uh, 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 seek to advance human rights and uh, offer protection but we also have instruments nationally, such as the Commission for Human Rights, which I'll talk about uh, just now. So internationally, at UN level, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, Conventions on the Rights of Children, and uh, of course, uh, continentally, we have the Africa Charter for Human and People's Rights, which is, of course, our Bill of Rights uh, continentally. And uh, our country is a signatory to all of those, uh, meaning that we then abide by uh, what they stipulate. So um, the Bill of Rights is instructive on government, on uh, private companies and, and civil society. And of course, as uh, uh, citizens, we can then use uh, this same Bill of Rights to um, address any violation of our rights, uh, be it um, uh, from government side or from individuals or private companies. Uh, the South African Human Rights Commission was established uh, to protect these human rights. They play a role in uh, negotiating in cases of violation of rights and mediating. And at times, um, you know, uh, they are able to take matters to court where when me uh, negotiation and mediation fails. And they are also involved in uh, advocacy work around issues of human rights. And of course they do uh, investigations in cases of human rights violation. Okay, so before I go back to uh, social work, uh, let me spend some time talking about socioeconomic rights because this is very important and um, it uh, links directly with um, the notion of social justice. So what do we mean by socioeconomic rights? These are the rights to education, to a healthy environment, uh, the rise to access to housing, healthcare, food, water, and social security. So these socioeconomic rights are provided for in the Bill of Rights. Okay. But back to what Jennifer was pointing us to, the lived realities of our people, you will realize that many of um, our fellow citizens does not enjoy these socioeconomic rights. They are completely cut off. 
from access to education, access to healthcare, access to housing, food, water, and social security. Despite this being part of um, the um, Bill of Rights. So the Human Rights Commission continues to uh, protect and promote human rights uh, through making sure that government um, continues to work towards improving the quality of life of people. Of course, there are limitations imposed by scarcity of resources, both human and material. And um, I will link this back to the notion of social justice and structural reforms. We will never ever be able to overcome this limitation unless fundamental changes are effected at a structural, systemic, and institutional level. However, the question provides that um, these rights, if they are not immediately realizable, may be progressively realized, meaning that the government needs to show that they are progressively allocating resources, putting efforts to ensuring that this are realized. Okay, so let's go back to um, the role of social work as part of uh, a collective of social service professionals. I want to submit, uh, Chair, that um, social work as a profession in itself um, caught up in a problematic situation as to other social science profession and many other uh, professions, including the natural sciences, engineering, and um, uh, you know, financial professions. The problem with uh, all these professions, and I want to concur with the previous speakers that uh, we need to foster greater interdisciplinary collaboration and uh, do away with disciplinary decadence. There's just no way that we can make meaningful impact to the material conditions of our people if we continue as professionals to act in silos. Social workers, we need to appreciate the contribution that is made from the financial sciences, from uh, uh, life sciences and other sciences in what we are doing or in the kind of change that we want to affect at society because as social work, we are concerned about the society. Our focus should be on the society rather than disciplinary problematics. We should not be consumed in professional matters, in addressing professional matters at the expense of societal issues. Social workers as a profession who were founded 
to address social issues. Save humanity from cradle to grave, as we state uh, in the profession, in one of the motors. So um, the problem with the academic discipline and the profession is its entanglement with the modern capitalist neoliberalism. Of course, social work as a profession and as an academic discipline is a product of the same. But I think over time, historically, we were supposed to rise above that so that we may begin to um, directly address social issues, issues of social solidarity and coercion, and ensure the overall well-being of society. However, we continue to allow ourselves to be limited by the constraints imposed on us as a profession by uh, the limits of liberalism, which then raises questions of freedom and social engineering, whether when we talk autonomy, we genuinely mean total autonomy or autonomy in order to control. Because the modern project, co-opted social work into a role of social control in addressing the aftermath of capitalism. So we need to outgrow that limitation. Unless we do that, we will continue to remain handmaidens of the modern capitalist society and the nation state. Of course, we need to work with governments. We need to assist governments. We need to collaborate. But the professional project should be bigger than just simply working with government. For instance, when we talk the NDP, NDP is a government project. Of course, we need to understand it, and we need to understand its implications on the well-being of people. For us to do that effectively, we need to rise above the boxes created by government. We need to be able to um, ha have a helicopter view on issues and not limit ourselves to the constraints of nation states, the constraints of uh, 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 liberalism and other uh, systems and institutions that, in my view, are the root cause of the problems that we're sitting with in the social fabric today. So I call for a shift from early capitalist individualism to 
policies that recognizes the need for social reconstruction and cohesion. Effectively calling for an epistemic revolution. So when we talk epistemology, it's about knowledge, what kind of knowledge we want to create for who and why. So we need to start thinking about, we were talking earlier on about the, the intellectual muscle, you know, mobilizing the intellectual muscle. What kind of intellectual muscle? It shouldn't be the one that tries to fit in the mold. It should be emancipatory. It should be one that uh, explores possibilities beyond the moments. And I believe we can do that. We simply need to start thinking outside the box. Why do we need to do this? I submit that modernity is in crisis. The whole idea of capitalist liberalism is in crisis. Why? Um, the weekend uh, social role of the state meant that uh, social responsibilities are now pushed away from the state to the individual, family and other social organizations. And now the state is only left with the role of control and regulation. So I want to submit that we need to advocate for more state intervention. It is important given our historical past. We cannot, of course, I must commend our government that, um, that the government is doing its best in ensuring that uh, you know, they intervene where possible. We're not, we cannot say that we purely capitalist. There is some degree of state intervention, but we need more as you know, um, uh, we've seen with the debates around the basic income grant and the criticism for it and the polarization between those that calls for it, advocate for it, vis-a-vis -vis those that are against it. And, 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 and the stigmatization of that, which shouldn't be the case. One of the key things that we need to uh, start considering seriously is um, embracing interdependence. So if we think of the rich and the poor, those that are rich, if you think about who, who did the spade work in the accumulation of that world, it's the very poor people. So, so the rich depends on the poor to make their, their wealth. So why can't the poor depend on the rich uh, uh, for their well-being? So these are some of the things that we need to think about. But of course, they, they do not reside in the mainstream conventional liberal thinking. We need to step out of that to be able to start appreciating all these things. So destitution and inequality persist despite all these good efforts that the government is putting in place, despite the, the, the rights that we have, despite 
active um, uh, citizenry and many other nice things that we may think of because you have all those things in 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 a in a context of um uh, deprivation uh, uh, history of dispossessions that were never redressed hence the call for social justice let's redress let's let's redress let's ensure that uh, the stolen land is returned to its rightful people so that they can continue to 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 to, to, to survive on it they can continue to build sustainable livelihoods on that land. The resources, you know, the endowment of minerals and resources in our, in our continent should benefit our people. We are a rich country full of poor people. Something is wrong at structural level, and that needs to be changed. And that's what we need to be talking about. So as a result of this institutional inequality, we have an uncertain future going to And it is this notion of an uncertain future that we must grapple with as social workers and other uh, social service professions. And I argue that it is impossible to realize that in the current frame of things. We need to do more than what we've done over the years. Turn the situation around. Um, so if we reflect historically on what social work has done over in different political contexts, you'll see, you'll see a pattern of complacence, of uh, being a handmaiden of, of a nation state instead of critically engaging the social question and ensuring that what needs to be done to ensure the well-being of the citizens of a country is done. So, um, and the detachment from political and ethical questions of justice and equality. We cannot continue in that fashion. We need to go back to these fundamental questions and address them head on. Uh, colleagues, um, I'm, I'm not going to touch on all those things, but the key argument here is that we should start concentrate, concentrating not on uh, the individual dimensions of social problems, but on contextual structural issues like poverty and lack of support systems, as argued by Schemit 2015. This is important. Uh, several scholars have called for this, but um, it does not seem to take off the ground, but we need to continue to find practical solutions to addressing structural issues. Um, our interventions, uh, at personal level, you know, uh, we were talking about uh, now uh, in, in the previous presentation about, you know, shifting more towards the micro intervention. But of course, the, 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 the micro is also important than the meso. But the key thing in all of this is that 
all these interventions must affirm social citizenship, ensure rights and promote equality so that we don't have this endemic problem of social inequality continue and actually becoming worse as we progress. So I argue that we need to move away from the liberal view of society and um, the indiscriminate use of the notion of agency and rationality as espoused in uh, liberal cycles. Our people don't have agency. We do not expect them to be as rational as claimed within the, 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 the liberal cycle, given the battering that they've suffered historically. The notion of personal autonomy, freedom, and equality is not immediately realizable under the circumstances. Okay, so I'm not going to go into issues of rationality, I've touched on them, but um, so. As a result of all these things that I'm talking about, we see a sense of powerlessness, doubt, uncertainty, social cohesion going down, uh, uh, breaking down of uh, significant social support structures, such as the family, community, religious, and, and, and cultural structures. Uh, we see societies uh, uh, being driven apart through dislocation, migration, poverty, economic exploitation. So these things continues into, they form part of the conditions of the present. And that's what needs to be addressed. So now social work needs to critically review its mandate together with the other um, uh, cognate uh, uh, social service professions and work together in a, in, a, in an interdisciplinary dialogue to ensure that uh, the social question is brought to the fore in order to change the circumstances, material conditions of uh, in concluding, colleagues, in concluding, uh, we require new forms of social contracts where social workers can pioneer in their daily encounters with uh, vulnerable groups. Uh, be pioneers for real and meaningful social change. We need to uh, advance the social question, okay? Which is about the well-being of people generally, solidarity of people, uh, the ability of people to work together, you know, in a mutually beneficial manner, in a sustainable way that ensures uh, the well-being of everyone. Um, of course, community development plays a very critical role there, and that needs to be strengthened. Unfortunately, as uh, my colleague uh, Dr. Tabisa indicated, uh, this weakening of a focus in community work in, in, in social work, and we need to revisit this this one. Uh, it, it will become key in, in, in addressing this issue that I'm raising, the social question. So as um, eloquently captured by Lawrence 2016, we need 
to start harnessing the creative tension between autonomy and mutual dependence. It's not wrong to interdepend. It's, you will find certain sectors of the population that will have to depend on others for support and assistance. So we need to embrace this, build on it, and ensure that that dependency is not a permanent feature of people's life. But measures can be put in place to kickstart a, a process of emancipating people from that sense of dependency. And of course, grants play a key role in, 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 in addressing that. And of course, um, my key argument is that as social scientists, we need to fully embrace uh, the value of social justice. It is a core value in social work, but we've not done enough to practically ensure that uh, we safeguard this value in, uh, in as far as the material uh, living conditions of all people. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. I will uh, end here. Okay, um, uh, Dr. Matsewane, um, it was 47 minutes to the dot. Uh, now, I was tempted several times to stop you, but then you were presenting thought-provoking, um, uh, you know, questions to us to say, are we really starting where we're supposed to start? Or we just we 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 heading straight to the head uh, without considering where the tail might be. It is important to know where you are. It is important to know where you're starting. Um, and you reminded me in 1987 when George Lobo was grappling with the question of class struggle versus national struggle. Uh, in that he says both struggles are important, but sequentially we must know where we need to start. And he was advancing an argument that says it is important for us to embark on national struggle, knowing that once we are done with that, we're going to move on to, to the class struggle. And to this day, uh, that hasn't been um, touched on. And you, you, you also indicating um, the issues of embarking on um, epistemic revolution. So there was quite a lot. I made a huge summary here. Unfortunately, time is not on our side for me to, um, to go back to some of the critical issues that you raised here, seeing that we supposed to end at 1,500 hours. Uh, I, I loved the presentation. But uh, without further ado, um, now I can't even take questions. Uh, I know uh, I saw some, some, some comments being uh, put here um, by colleagues. Uh, but seeing that time is not on our side, I want us to end at exactly 1,500 hours. So at this point, I want to then, um, of course, at the backdrop of all the presentations that have been made, um, invite um, Dr. Noyo, who's, who in turn is going to invite uh, the TTG, uh, Mr. Buteles, um, to, to sum up and say, then what do we take, what is the take home from this colloquium? Um, uh, Prof. Noyo? Uh, program director, thank you very much. I, I just want a, a housekeeping issue. Are we uh, constrained? Uh, can we, uh, in terms of time, can we add maybe 10 minutes or, or so? Bottom up, with the, um, with the permission permission of the audience, uh, we can add the, the 10 minutes, but we, we need to hear from them if they permit us to do so. Yes, uh, from my side, 10 minutes we can give you, but not more than that. <laughs> All right, no, no, not, not me. I, I, I feel uh, Dr. 
Matebane Mbazimas, he is also needs his, uh, that interrogation uh, from the, the questions that should come from the audience. Okay. We wrap up. Okay. No, perfect. Thank you very much. We've been colleagues. We've been granted. We've granted ourselves um, an extra ten minutes. Perhaps we can allocate three minutes or four minutes of that uh, to Dr. Matabane. He, he presented a lot of thought-provoking questions uh, and proposals. So it is important that we also try and do justice to, to his presentation because it was at, exactly at that high level. Um, and Aisha, um, Aisha Abrams there um, from UFS uh, Social Work Department was uh, actually questioning you, Dr. Matabane, saying, um, "Are you calling for?" social workers to go back to their roles of advocacy and, and change agents, looking at um, what you were presenting, looking at structural, systemic, and institutional um, institutional problems that we have that actually give rise to what we're talking about here, the violence. Violence being the symptom. At least that's what I got from you. Violence is just the symptom, and you cannot address the symptom without addressing its root cause. And its root cause lies exactly at that level the macro, macro level where you touched the structural, systemic, and institutional level. Do you want to come back, Dr. Matebane? Yes, thanks, Chair. Uh, precisely, uh, I think Aisha, and uh, that's what we're saying, uh, but uh, uh, over and above just advocacy, we regard ourselves as change agents. And one of the, 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 the focus areas in the, in the, in, in the domain, uh, the trifocal domain of social work is uh, social reform. So this is not something new, it's something that uh, uh, is part of our DNA that uh, we were just not acting on more uh, uh, directly and uh, you know, uh, in an impactful manner. So, so we need to go back to, to the and uh, really ensure that we, 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 we in the I mean, this is this this calls for social workers to be political role players as well, because you see, um, the living and material conditions of people is not just determined by their choice. It's also determined by the choices that other people make on their behalf, like uh, what the political class decides to do. Now, if the political class decide on a policy that, in the long term, uh, 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 limits their ability people to self-actualize, as social change agents, we need to be able to stand up and, and show and demonstrate, uh, of course, with evidence, empirical evidence, and, 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 and other uh, tools that we have as, as, as to show that uh, this is not the way to go. So we need to actively engage at all levels and across uh, 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 we need to rise above uh, uh, the limits um, uh, of disciplinary decadence. We cannot continue to, to, to be limited by uh, our scope of practice as social work and only focus on what is in the scope of uh, our practice of social work. We need to look at how can we harness uh, 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 the resources that we have in collaboration with other professionals across Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Matawani, on that one. And uh, you, you spoke at length about uh, the evils of colonialism and, of course, um, the capitalism. Um, and uh, in so doing, you indicated uh, that, um, you know, 
what, what meaning does autonomy and um, individual responsibilities have in a situation that is highly problematic structurally at a structural level? You spoke about that. Are you perhaps um, to be direct, uh, uh, Dr. Matebane, are you suggesting that capitalism as it stands is problematic and perhaps we need to gravitate towards uh, socialism, communism as it were? Is that what you're advocating for? Is that what social workers and so the broader social sciences should be advocating for? Thank you, Chair. I think you're touching on a very important, we, we cannot run away from this. So that's an ide ideological uh, uh, question that also links to economic policy. So whatever that we're seeing today, it's a direct result of choices that were made um, at an ideological level, at economic policy level. Now, you cannot continue doing the same thing and expect a different result. We've seen capitalism has failed. Capitalism promotes greediness that the few accumulate and accumulate endlessly at the expense of the majority. We cannot allow that kind of situation to continue unabated. We need to get to a point where we can say, this is not right, this is wrong. We need each other. We need to work together. We need to complement one another. Um, together explore alternatives. There is or there are better alternatives. It is not true that the liberal capitalist way is the only way. That cannot be true. And I think our younger generation needs to take that struggle on to say we need to openly explore better macroeconomic policy alternatives. We need to explore alternative ideologies, not necessarily socialism, um, Chair. Uh, we can, there are many options. We can find something in between socialism and capitalism still. Look, let's, let's look at China, for, for instance. How China has become uh, a superpower that it has become now from a co communist beginnings and taking advantages of opportunities of capitalism, but to the benefits of its own citizens. So I'm saying that uh, we cannot afford to be apolitical as social workers and as social change agents, if we honestly claim we are social change agents. We will have to engage uh, uh, at a political level as well. We, we will also have to engage uh, at an ethical level to question some of the unethical practices that we've allowed over the years to, to continue unchallenged despite uh, uh, the, 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 the evidently negative results that uh, it has caused on our people. Uh, people living in abject poverty, people without any means of survival, uh, uh, continuing in those circumstances under our, our watch. That cannot be okay. So what I'm saying is um, as social workers, uh, whether in, in, in the field or in academy, we need to start uh, uh, working beyond limitations imposed by those situations to engage the society. Uh, social work is about the society. Uh, it's not for itself. So we cannot be there to seem just merely serve uh, the profession, we need to serve the society. What is the society? Uh, uh, needing right now. There's a clarion call at societal level for social workers who 
really advocate a genuine well-being of people who put uh, uh, alternatives on the table uh, at all levels uh, in order to ensure that in the long run as a society mobilizes together in a direction that will protect and serve the well-being of everyone. Thank you, Chair. Leader, that is that is very deep. You're moving at a, at a high terrain, uh, what others could view as a mind shifting. Uh, and perhaps that's exactly what we need. And, and at some point in time, some people spoke about coming up with revolutionary theories, uh, but it does not end at revolutionary theories. Uh, it should extend to uh, revolutionary sol solutions uh, to problems that basically get, that necessitate the rise of those um, revolutionary theories that we're talking about. So I think uh, it resonates exactly with um, with my thinking, and uh, I suppose even the the broader attendance here there is something that they are cleaning out of. Uh, out of your presentation. Unfortunately, again, time is not on our side. So perhaps it will be appropriate for me at this point, uh, Prof Noyo, to in, uh, invite you uh, so that we conclude the program. Uh, thank you very much, um, my Chair. And uh, thank you very much to um, the audience and uh, the panelists for us spending all this afternoon and the early part of the morning, uh, better part of the morning as well, to engage critically with these issues of critical national concern. And, 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 and I think as we pointed out uh, in the preamble to, to, to this uh, colloquium that uh, um, we, we are looking at issues of business unusual um, where academics can begin to plot another uh, pathway for, for the country uh, in conjunction with the government. And, and, and we're not going to apologize for that. Um, government is of critical importance. And I, and I would like to just delve a little bit into the historical past of African countries uh, in the post-independence uh, uh, era in the 1960s and the 1970s, where scholars were working in tandem with uh, the new uh, independent countries in, 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 in Africa, your Ben Magubanes, Ben Chiroks, uh, Ali Mazrui, um, um, Walter Rodney, um, uh, Ibo Madaza, uh, Samir Amin. These were uh, Tandika Mkandawiri, uh, Guy Mhone. These are, uh, among other scholars, who are beginning to uh, shape a new agenda um, uh, for Africa and, and working uh, closely with governments, obviously also critiquing when, when it's necessary. And, and, and we were able to see states implement uh, policies that resonated uh, with, 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 with the, the mass of the people. Uh, and, 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 and when dictatorships and one-party state regimes uh, came to the fore and depraved dictatorships such as Idi Amin and, and Mobutu Seseko in Uganda and, 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 and um, uh, Zaire, who uh, at that time, which is the DRC, we found that scholars and intellectuals were hound, uh, basically not even hounded, but hunted down and killed for their ideas. So it's important for us to also take this center stage and, 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 and appreciate the fact that we are able to shape history in a fundamental way, in a fundamental way. 
So thank you very much colleagues for, for the presentations, insightful presentations for the engagement from, from, the, from the audience as well. And, and, and uh, without further ado, I would like to um, uh, call upon DDG Tamani uh, Butelezi from, from the Department of Social Development. Uh, Schenge, you, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, uh, Prof. And uh, I think one needs to um, extend the appreciation uh, for the invitation and partnership that we've been able to forge and uh, for a very successful uh, uh, and progressive platform that we have created. And indeed, one could say this has been a festival of uh, ideas, uh, of, of solutions and propositions uh, that uh, uh, have come up today uh, since the engagement uh, this morning. But however, the few points that one can make is to whilst acknowledging and appreciating all the inputs that have been made, but also we need to uh, also bear in mind uh, the environment and the space we find ourselves in as government uh, and the operational environment, uh, which of course have got serious constraints and some of the other issues. One of them, of course, uh, is a whole, uh, the fiscus, and, and, and which makes it uh, impossible sometimes to upscale uh, some of the uh, the great works that we have done in our inability to attract um, uh, more um, uh, skills uh, to come on board and assist uh, in this space it could be social service professionals uh, would recall uh, the ndp uh, uh, was clear that by 2030 we need to have over 50,000 uh, 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 social uh, social workers employed, uh, and, and if you look at how uh, the social ills have been growing, and I'm sure the number could more, and uh, we continue to see quite really, really unwarranted and appalling uh, um, uh, um, episodes of these social ills. Just yesterday, we were learning about how the teenage pregnancy has increased, and even amongst the young children, and I'm saying, this is the space we find ourselves in as the social development and also to be able to respond uh, uh, positive and make an impact it becomes difficult once we deal with the structural poverty issues of unemployment inequality that have been there uh, 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 but also we we find ourselves in the space where we are competing with issues of violence issues of uh, um, uh, the, the 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 social ease that continue to uh, to, to grow uh, this is in spite of some of the progressive um, uh, and, and, and policies, uh, some who are women rights uh, orientated and they don't seem to be able to uh, deliver and yield uh, the results as, 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 as uh, to a maximal extent. Uh, but so what then becomes important as well is to say, in the light of this evidence that is being shared, uh, and of course it does contribute to a body of knowledge and you want to appreciate the evidence that's provided. Um, uh, 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 but also we need to say to what extent is it in line uh, with a rigorous assessment evaluation of what has been working 
uh, 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 so that we know what is working or not. Uh, so if there could be more evaluations that should be done uh, on this um, quantum of, 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 of uh, progressive policies and programs that we have adopted as a country and that we still will continue uh, to adopt uh, this, some of these policies, to what extent do we invest more as well towards that so that we learn uh, in terms of we know this is working and this is not, and in what condi under conditions that it is working and it's not. Because we knew, uh, as part of what government did when we established the, uh, the, the, the PME, uh, uh, there was then a new emphasis on the use of evidence, especially so that it began to give more emphasis on the evaluation uh, perspective. And uh, for the National Evaluation Plan, what it emphasizes on, on the evidence is that after each and every evaluation that is done, we need to come up with what is called the improvement plan, which then begins, we need to take ownership as a, a department, having appreciated all the findings so that we are able to improve that particular intervention or program. And I'm saying, these are some of the innovations that we need to begin to uh, leverage on and so forth. But also one of the key lessons as well uh, for me is that it's clear that we need to strengthen a partnership, um, uh, 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 especially the one with the civil society. Uh, and for us as DSD, as a custodian of uh, the NPO Act, we have an opportunity and entrusted with the responsibility of creating that vibrant, uh, 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 providing an enabling, creating an enabling environment so that the vibrancy of these uh, NCOs will be ensured, but also they continue to be our service delivery arm and partner. But what is key as well, and what is probably missing in the conversation, is that as we uh, undertake and understand these things, what then becomes the role of business? Because they cannot be just the beneficiary of some of the of the uh, work that has been done in terms of business, uh, but also uh, they need to be active uh, towards this reconstruction and making sure that we are able to deal uh, with these uh, uh, particular issues. And I, I think, uh, in, in lastly, for us is also to realize and which came up strongly as well the important role that uh, uh, is played by the social service professional. So that all that cater uh, that is there. And part of it is uh, one, uh, the ability uh, for them to provide the psychosocial service, uh, uh, support services because of the trauma that is there and so forth. And uh, um, uh, we can understand now with all the deaths and the mortality that has increased because of COVID, there are many families that we left without adults and so forth. So there's also the post-trauma that you need to start thinking about. We also realize that we need to upscale uh, on the social behavioral change programs. Yeah, we have quite a number of them targeting young people. You've got your chomis, you've got your YOLO, you only live once and so forth. And we, we saw how the social behavioral change as well has an impact. So when we country dealing and the whole world dealing with HIV AIDS, a part of the, the ABC stories started to work because they deal with the behavior of, of, of individuals. And, and this is the place we find ourselves in as a, as a department uh, of social development. We are uh, somehow called the heartbeat of government because we'll always be there at the beginning and then remain with these communities. So even during the COVID, we were there, people that should be uh, cancelled and so forth before the injections, when they leave people, uh, when they lost their loved ones. So it's all this uh, work that uh, we need to do. So our space 
keeps on increasing yet uh, the workforce and the resources that you have are not as increasing as, as, as one. If Minister was here, she would have reminded us that one of the things that was done in the past 27 years, we spend more time investing and uh, 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 thinking about the South Africa that you want to build, but probably we spend less time thinking about the South Africans that need to inhibit that South Africa that you want. So I think we need to adopt the same approach as we uh, uh, look at the community development as well, consider the people that needs uh, we need to build so the investment on young people comes uh, into space. Uh, I want to thank and congratulate you once again, uh, both the institutions the UCT as well as the UFs for having organized such a very successful uh, colloquium and want to thank each and every speaker uh, who made uh, input and everyone that participated and but for us uh, we are looking forward to be more uh, to strengthen this partnership and we make sure that we engage with individual units uh, appropriately so that we share this evidence and see how we we we, we partner uh, better but thank you so much uh, once again uh, to, uh, to all the guests and uh, uh, or the program uh, thank you so much ddg please do not do not leave um did you come back um part of the i've not i've, I've not left <laughs> <laughs> right. part of the briefing we had with minister and part of the agenda setting we had before the colloquium was that we are going to before we depart um uh, leave with a, a declaration a declaration from Bloemfontein that begins to say that uh, government and the academics that came to this colloquium are going to be committed to this particular pathway on bearing, uh, bringing to bear sorry, social sciences, um, uh, intellectual muscle to deal with these challenges going forward. And we have um, three points um, at least that we could agree on and then we can flesh out the others later on so that when you go back to your political principles, you will be able also to say, we had agreed on three points uh, as a way forward. Um, Doc? Yes, um, thank you very much for that. Um, so it, it is part of the, uh, the Bloomfontein Declaration, as we're saying, um, we, 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 we it, 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 it comes from the presentations that come in, that, that came up from our colleagues here, is that one, 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 the first one, which is key and foremost in the establishment of partnership between the two institutions, uh, being the the University of, of, of Free State, as well, um, in, in ensuring that we partner on developing um, the programmatic uh, issues uh, that will influence uh, pro, uh, behavioral change. So it, it, I think that is one thing that came up quite clearly, uh, even uh, from, from uh, the presentations that we, that we hear from. Right, and, and, and also uh, it's, it, we, the anchorage obviously are the two uh, institutions, but as you have seen, we have got a spread of scholars from different uh, universities. And, and so this is also a commitment that as, as, as scholars from these universities, we, we, uh, they, we are agreed, uh, we are agreed to the, the new pathway uh, to bring our disciplines um, uh, to deal with these challenges. Um, and also the, the strengthening of the research, a robust research agenda that is um, you know, anchored in Afrocentric um, uh, you know, worldviews and perspectives. 
as well as indigenous knowledge systems. I, I think that is one of the issues that was discussed, um, that we should have something that is practically um, workable in the South African context. That is not just a replication of Eurocentric uh, viewpoints and, and models. Um, would you like to add on that, though? Yeah. No, you've, you, I think you've put it aptly. Uh, it, that is uh, also pointing to the direction of establishment of a scholarship um, around these social, uh, social ills that we've just um, touched on in this presentation. And again, the other, the other critical issue being that um, also that was also touched by the minister that this shouldn't be first and last and other colleagues uh, who attended here, uh, they kept on indicating that let this, let this not be the, the, the first and last um, let this, this endeavor to see more and more platforms where we engage on practical issues. Today, we're touching on the, uh, theoretical aspect and also coming up with practical issues. But beyond that, we need to then come up with platforms where we also engage with other stakeholders, of course, government being with us throughout, because government is a, a, a critical a strategic partner in this. And, and, and lastly, um, the, the, uh, we, we were all agreed to the fact that the uh, colloquium will have a special edition. I mean, that's, as you know, DDG, as academics, we still have to have that academic uh, output uh, that will have something that is written. But again, it's um, as a way of um, you know, painting the way forward. Um, that the colloquium is interested in arriving at tangible solutions. And so our papers will also be couched in this um, uh, a new pathway, new thinking that we are proposing. Um, and so we'll have that special edition of, of a journal. Uh, but also we are thinking, and this is something that came through from uh, our colleagues, uh, Comrade Papi from DSD, that we should also We'll, we'll summarize and republish in, in newsletters uh, within the social development sector, the issues that were raised here. So it's not just going to be a, an academic output, but um, uh, synthesize uh, um, um, some of the um, uh, issues that were raised in, in this colloquium. And lastly, we, it is also important that we have clear uh, interaction um, between the government and ourselves, we are open. And I think um, one of our colleagues, um, uh, Mr. Ramini, really, you know, uh, highlighted the issue that here we are, we have a minister, uh, a political principal, who has taken time from, you know, a very busy schedule to come and engage with us. And I, I, me as well, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor to have uh, such a minister who, who, who shows that, you know, she cares with, uh, about the country's issues, but more importantly, is able to engage with us. So I think the doors should continue to be open and, and, and you will be our key point, uh, uh, DDG, so to speak, uh, and we'll <laughs> engage with you. Many thanks. Uh, over to you. Yes, thank you very much. Um, then let's give to DDG um, to respond to this, this is uh, this will form part of the declaration from this call. Thank you so much, I, and I think that is uh, very useful. Um, uh, and I think I fully agree uh, with 
uh, what is being proposed as the uh, the Plumfontein Declaration, and I think most of the progressive, long-lasting uh, 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 things from South Africa started somehow in Plumfontein. So, so I think uh, we'll get to that uh, uh, spirit and uh, be able to emulate uh, some of those uh, uh, the ancestors, uh, 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 allowing, I'm sure, it will grow to those uh, bounds and leaps. Um, in terms of this partnership, and I agree that we need to do that. And, but I also think uh, it will not mean we are closing doors uh, for much more uh, other people that we need to bring on board uh, as we engage in this uh, and forge this uh, partnership. Uh, and um, and indeed, uh, the the research agenda strengthening, uh, I think, is part of the uh, the the other areas that you want to uh, be it. And also, I think as a department, we benefit immensely because when when we start also doing our probably multi-year uh, uh, research agenda and evaluation plan, it could be also housed within this partnership uh, uh, because we can benefit largely from. Um, uh, the uh, the expertise that is is here, especially in various uh, elements, uh, as it mainly relates to the work that we we are, we are doing. Also, in line with the element of of, of scholarships and uh, capacity building initiatives, we also do those, and we can start partnering. Um, and, uh, 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 Dan will remember when we are doing even a social policy training and so forth. How do we begin to resuscitate? Uh, some of those particular um, capacity building initiatives with establish uh, IPGA training uh, with some of the international experts in the space. You already raised, I'm saying we had uh, some of those, and I think it provides an opportunity for us as well to, uh, to, to, to do that. And I think I fully agree for the continuity of these engagements. And uh, uh, But what is important for me uh, is that probably we can then agree once this is formally uh, signed, uh, because it will also require the legal services as well to engage so that we have something that is in black and white. Nothing exists until it's in black and white. Uh, so if we can have more of an MOU, which really, really unpacks what each and every element would mean. So I'm saying I'm, I'm also seeing that a post-engagement at the technical level where we really unpack what is that we want to see uh, uh, happening in this and also should not be the only face and voice around. I'll bring my other uh, colleagues and I, I also need to report back uh, about this and see uh, how do we better internalize this uh, partnership uh, beyond just uh, uh, myself because of my interest in some of the places, but it's much more of a DSD uh, uh, program. And not just for DSD, but we are a, a portfolio. We've got our NDA, which is quite uh, a, a key uh, entity, as well as uh, the social security agents, including our, our, our other partners, as well as our provincial counterpart. Uh, but I, I fully agree and appreciate this opportunity. And I think it's the, the way to go uh, that we need to have this declaration and it cannot be from a better place and not uh, uh, other than a profound thing. Thank you so much, colleagues.
Thank you so much. We are all smiles and we're trusting that um, exactly what you've just said now uh, in a short space of time, we'll manage to bring everything together and ensure that um, from a technical point of view, everything is put in, into place. We are highly appreciate that. And um, then at this point, colleagues, uh, I know he had given us 10 minutes. Uh, kindly allow me to invite uh, Prof. Uh, Twala, um, so the Vice Dean, so that um, he can give us a lot of things um, and then we depart. Prof. Twala. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mpume. Uh, from the side of, of the faculty, we are so happy that we managed to host this, this colloquium. Uh, although it, it went overboard by about 30 minutes, and Dr. Mpume, I guess you know that we are invited by the dean by half past three for another meeting. Uh, but thank you very much, colleagues, for, for your time. And Mr. Butelezi, also with your team, uh, pass our our curtains also to to the minister for having shared her views with with us. Uh, it is also important to colleagues, as alluded to by some of of the presenters and also uh, some of the participants, the whole question of paying lip service. We need not to pay lip service. We need to implement an action what we agreed upon here. I usually saying to people. Uh, from the historical point of view, we must avoid sleeping in the middle of a revolution. And then when you talk about a revolution, we are talking about a big change. I think this is one step towards a big change that we are going to, to envisage in the near future with the partnership from the two institutions uh, together with uh, the Department of Social uh, Development. Uh, I took note of, of uh, emphasis on the youth that we must also tap and target the youth, which is also important. And I also took note of Masupatsila. And that Masupatsila, uh, although it is coined as if it is something that is new today, it has been there within the ANC in exile. Perhaps we, from a historical point of view, we needed to tap into the actions of Masupatsila in exile and how can we cascade that to Masupatsila of, of today. As humanities and social science, we need also to occupy space and redefine ourselves and whether are we, are we relevant in addressing the social ills uh, that are uh, uh, embracing us today. And then from an African perspective, I would also urge and say, let us come with Afrocentric kind of agendas in order to move, to move forward. And in conclusion, uh, taking a cue from one of the Pan-Africanists uh, who was a leader uh, of one country in South in, in Africa, as a Torre, who indicated, I quote, we prefer poverty in liberty that rather than riches in slavery, unquote. And I think this is a mouthful, colleagues. And then he continued to say, to take part in an African revolution, it is not enough to write a revolutionary song. You must fashion the revolution with the people. And if you fashion it with the people, the song will come by themselves. I think that that is a, an important quote to, to close our colloquium colleagues and say to ourselves, we need not to be our own enemies as it was alluded to by John Langabra Lele Mavuguzela Dube in 1912 after being uh, actioned as the ANC or the South African Native Congress a leader, 
and he indicated that black men, you must not be your own enemy. I guess we are not going to be our own enemies with this by letting it down. We need to continue and put our hands up and then continue and soldier on because in partnership with government, we can assist our government to, to succeed. Thank you, uh, Chairperson. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Prof. Twala, for those words. Um, and thank you very much to everybody. Uh, in fact, the role of Prof. Twala here now was to thank everybody. So I won't thank anybody anymore, anymore because he has done that. And I think we, we, we all feel having been welcomed and we did well in participating uh, in this colloquium. Until we meet next time, colleagues, uh, thank you very much. Go well. Cheers. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you, Doctor. Thanks.